This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And BeaverFit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, Listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. 
So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 478 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Alex Vasquez. Now, Alex is not only a veteran of a Florida fire department, but also part of their specialty dive team. So we discuss a host of topics from his early childhood to some of the most significant calls that he went on to when he found himself struggling as far as PTSD and then his experience in the IFF Center of Excellence. So there is so much value. There are some very unique elements of his story that I think a lot of people will learn from. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Alex Vasquez. Enjoy. Alex, I want to start by saying thank you for welcoming me to your beautiful home, and uh, I am looking forward to hearing this conversation. Yeah, all right. You know, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Beautiful. Now, we're tragically sitting here the day after we lost another Orange County firefighter, Eric Sienna. So, uh, this is kind of a, a pertinent conversation. I know we're talking about mental health, but I mean, health in general is extremely important to me, and when there's yet another funeral to go to it really kind of reignites the fire to get these messages out absolutely um you know being i i don't care what type of death um losing someone close to you is um can add to mental health um depending on what type you know it, it doesn't matter um losing it's like losing a family member it doesn't matter what they die of it it still affects you the same way so absolutely all right so Let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Um, I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, 1977 and uh, moved to Tampa, Florida when I was about six months old. My father was in the um, National Guard. Um, They moved him down. Um, I have an older sister um three uh, so i'm the middle of three boys um so i have an older brother and a younger brother um i have a half sister who's the technically the eldest but we weren't raised with her so gotcha and what do your parents do um my father was a uh basically like an all-around handyman worked in a hardware store my mom um was a lunch lady for many many years um, trying to, you know, she wanted to learn English and things like that. So, um, she just got your basic housekeeping jobs. And, um, later on in life, she went back to school to be a, um, like, um, CNA, um, 
and tried to move, you know, through that. And then she ended up just taking care of um, elderly patients and things like that. So beautiful. And where were they from originally? Uh, both my parents were from Puerto Rico. Okay. Um, yeah, they both were born and raised there, moved to New York like every Puerto Rican does, um, and uh, had three of our tr- siblings or, you know, all her, you know, three of her children, <clears throat> excuse me, there. And my younger brother was born in Tampa. Gotcha. All right. And then you mentioned that your dad was serving in the National Guard. Did you have any first responders in your close or extended family? Um, extended family wise, <clears throat> my uncles um, in uh, New York um, were... Um, firefighters and my uh, on my father's side uh, excuse me on my yes on my father's side um and my mother's side um police officers back in uh puerto rico oh okay brilliant and what about athletics when you were in school age what sports were you playing um i was uh, your jack of all trades master of none uh so i played uh football um, baseball track um i did some weightlifting competitions um Things like that. I didn't do basketball because of my sweet height that I have. But uh, just, you know, I, I love playing sports. And uh, I if I picked a sport, it was football. And that's the one, uh, the journey that I tried to, uh, you know, be, be my best in, I guess. So, again, school age. Tell me about what your dream career was when you were young. Man, um, you know, it was I wanted to be some form of showman, I guess, uh, uh, singer. I used to sing and stuff like that. Um, so it, it, the idea of being on a stage of some sort, whether it was football, I mean, just like every kid's dream or not every kid. But uh, my dream also was to play football in the next levels. Um, I knew the reality of it, especially being um, my height. Not that determination wouldn't have you know gotten me there, um, but like a singer or some form of comedian or something like that at, at, at that age when I was younger. That's what I um, wanted to do. Now, when, as we were going to talk about the mental health journey, a reoccurring theme over and over again, especially that people found themselves in a very dark place, is an element of childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. When you look back on your childhood, are there any things that you've identified now with that? And also, we're going to talk about OCD retroactively looking at behavior patterns that maybe showed that as well um sure my uh my childhood was uh not the best i would say um i was the i was a very hyperactive child Uh, my mother was a uh, battered woman and uh, my father and you know you can go back into his history as a child um he was um uh, his mother tried to kill him twice, so he never trusted women, and um, that just prolonged. He was raised by his grandmother, and so when my mother came along, it was he didn't trust her, and so he always thought that she had this evil plan against him, uh, and so he would beat her. And um, I always like to say, like, uh, crap rolls downhill, and my mom would come out of a room and uh, after being abused by my father, and there I am jumping on the couch like a normal, I would say a normal kid, uh, but none of my other siblings did that. So I used to get a a good pounding. Um, uh, My parents when, you know, would go to a doctor or something and they would tell them that I would have some form of hyperactive disorder before they, I would imagine they deemed the term ADHD. Um, But to my parents, I was just bad. You know, it just translated into, I was a bad child. Um, So I'm sure there were days that I didn't get hit, but I can't remember those days. Um, because it was, I was always being hit quite, um, quite a bit or what we would like to call 
battered, like really, you know, beat down cuts and bruises and not going to school because I was, was, I was bruised so much or I was cut or, um, from the belts or pans or whatever I was being hit with. Um, I was constantly being told I wasn't worthy. wasn't anything. I was a problem child that, um, I was raised that my older brother was going to be, had to be a lawyer so that he can bail me out of jail when I got, uh, when I got older, because that's what I was going to be. I was raised to be a criminal or a child, you know, a unsuccessful um, and that my older brother would have to be the savior of the family to get me out of trouble. And uh, so that's how I was, I was raised. Um, I was told that um, I think what by 11 years old, I was kicked out of the house, um, put on the street after a, a stint with my mom or my mom had a stint with my father, I guess. And uh, I was playing video games and it just didn't turn out right, I guess, you know, and she just went on a tangent kicked me out and uh, told me I wasn't uh, worth anything. And um, she wishes that she never had me. And uh, so at 11 years old, I was thrown out on the street and uh, really scared and uh, things like that. But I was very fortunate to have uh, a good friend whose mom picked me up right away. Um, And, you know, they deliberated on how to, handled this situation. So, um, it went back and forth, um, throughout my years. Um, they tried to get me back home. Um, but then I was kicked out again at 13. Um, not that I, you know, I'm sure I was, a. I talked back or, you know, some, but I, I always felt like I was just trying to justify myself, um, as a child. And, it just didn't work out well. I just wanted people to know my side of the story or why I was doing what I was doing or um, what was happening. And so um, I think when, so I, I moved out at 13 again and then they got me back home at 16. Um, and then when we're at like 16 and a half, probably they kicked me out again or I was kicked out again and I just never came back. I stayed at my friend's house until I graduated high school. Um, you know, moving forward to older years, you know, going back to family events or things like that. And my brothers were like, oh, yeah, when this happened and Alex got beat, that was me. You know, they would take they knew that it, they could do whatever they want as long as they blamed me because no, there was no investigative work done. It was. It had to have been me. So you became the scapegoat for all that behavior too. I did, no. um, and that was uh, that was very tough, um, tough for me. I know, even growing up through those times, my brother, who also had mental mental illness, um, uh, tried to uh, take my life twice, um, and uh, the the one time I was able to see the incident occurring. Um, I was just on the phone. He wanted the phone and I didn't give him the phone. So he went into the kitchen, grabbed a knife and uh, came back in to attack me. And uh, I was able to get myself out of that situation by improvising and saying that there was another call, like call waiting. And I got uh, I was like, oh, yeah, let me go get my mom for you right now. And I ran out of the room, got my mom and my there's my brother who was scraping his hand with a knife. And uh, um, yeah, so he went into a mental treatment facility for a little bit and then he came out i would say a couple years later and then he had uh he woke my parents up one night saying that he wanted to kill me again and so they sent him to uh at that time he didn't attack me he was able to reach out to my parents 
and say, I just have these strong urges. Psychotic episodes. Yeah. And um, he, you know, went and went, went into an in-treatment facility um, when he was, this was, you know, when he was young, you know, 16, 17 years old. Um, and um, those were kind of the last events that I heard from him in that aspect, even, you know, speaking to him now in our forties. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was how it was you know, being raised in my house, it was just almost like this survival, survival mode, you know? Um, and I think that's where I got my humor or my, um, my personality traits that I have was to, um, obviously my, my normal state of being was not accepted. So I had to come up with this, um, persona, I guess, um, like to be a chameleon, so I had to adapt and adjust to people, um, act like them so that I was accepted. Now, do you feel based on, you know, what it sounds like that you didn't feel loved as a child, that that pull towards the performance space was subconsciously wanting to be seen, wanting to be loved by someone if it wasn't happening in your own household? Um, absolutely. Um, I think at some point in time, I, you know, I always other than being driven by this, I have to prove people wrong. Um, I needed to let people know that I wasn't a POS or I wasn't dumb. I wasn't slow. I wasn't useless. I wasn't this horrible person that I was told that I was going to be. And I wanted people to like me. And I didn't know how to have people like me because my family, in my mind, my family didn't like me. Um, you know, there was... I think even growing before that, I didn't even, you know, I was, I think I was messed up as even before um, those things is because, you know, we've talked about in the past that um, I was sexually assaulted um, when I was three to five years old. So now here I am a hyper, uh, hyper sexualized child at five years old. Um, and that didn't go well either. You know what I mean? Because I thought those were normal things that you should experience as a young child, um, you know, and as an adult or, you know, growing up as a teenager. First of all, it's embarrassing, you know, to admit um, the things that happened to me. Um, but it just stayed with me. And here's this idea that I had to go through life hypersexualized, tried to tame that. Um, and then but I want people to like me. You know, and so I became this showman and um, I knew that I was hurting. And if I can make people laugh, make people smile, even if they were hurting, um, it was OK. You know, I, I was helping them. Um, I almost became this this idea that my job was to be an absorber of all wrong in the world and that. If there were 10 people hurting, if I could just take all their pain and absorb it, now 10 people are not hurting and only one is. And that was my job. That's where I became this savior, I guess, if you want to, uh, if you want to call it that I, my job, I had to come up with an idea of what's my purpose in life. And I thought my purpose in life was to suffer so that others did not. And it's, it's fascinating for two reasons. Firstly, 450 what do i just put out 57 i think will be today uh episodes within those and i talk about this quite a lot now because it's become a realization probably a third of the guests at least have been abused most sexually 
many as young, young children. So it's striking for two reasons. Firstly, the the trauma that so many men and women bring into the uniform professions. I think a lot of us want to break that cycle. You know, hurt people hurt people. Well, brave people stop that hurt and they become firefighters and police officers and, and members of military. Um, so I think we see a higher concentration, but it's also a, just a, a nauseating um, realization that these predatory actions are going on far more often than people realize and what's amazing about what this platform has has pulled out by having people like you courageously telling their stories is it's showing the rest of us like hey no they're in the shadows where you guys are all talking about masks and no masks and you know fox news and cnn there are children being attacked on a daily basis, you know, that, that's then going to pay forward and manifest in some of the mental health issues, the violence, the, you know, the things that, that we're seeing on the streets. So it's, it's haunting to hear it. But at the same time, you look at a parallel profession, you look at comedians, look at Robin Williams, perfect example. I'd say he was exactly what you just described. Mm-hmm. And even in the book that, that I wrote, I talk about, I think it's John Coffey, I got the name right, and from the Green Mile. Mm-hmm. That's how I see us, our profession. Mm-hmm. We take people's hurt, we try and mitigate it, but that pain stays with us. Correct. You know, that suffering we witnessed, whether they passed away, whether it was the family, whatever it was. So in trying to make the world better, if we don't address that childhood trauma, we actually magnify the effects as we start progressing through our career. You know, it's interesting um, going through, uh, you know, why I, I wanted to become... Um, at some point in time, everything changed and everything switched to where I wanted to help people, right? Um, in in the actual helping people where I was once was I was trying to be comedic about it and wanted people to be happy um, to the other um, side of actually helping people who um, did not choose their circumstance. And um, I did not choose my circumstance, but I didn't want that circumstance to hinder me, Um but there's also a level of I did I choose the profession that I chose because I also was trying to prove to somebody that, hey, he had a reasonable career. He didn't turn out to be a piece of junk. Um, you can swear on here, by the way. Oh, I've got okay. a potty mouth. So no, it's all right. Don't, don't, don't censor if you feel like you don't yeah, know. no worries. Uh, and so, it, you know, it is one of those um, those circumstances where. Um, sometimes we, you know, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing what we do? Is it because I wanted to prove to people also, okay, how can I, how can I maximize what profession can I do to maximize my helping people and get this respect that, um, uh, that I, I yearn for, I guess. And, you know, it's the reason why I, I possibly chose to become a, a firefighter. Um, I went on to become a paramedic. I became a diver. Um, I'm pretty much on, you know, other than, you know, a hazmat or truck ops, you know, I do, I'm on the bike team. I do a lot of stuff at headquarters. So I mastered a lot of things because I needed people to, even in the fire service, you know, we're alphas of alphas, right? So, um, I needed people in that industry to need me. I needed people to call me on the phone and say, hey, man, I don't know how to do this. Um, and so it was 
doing a lot of these things and excelling in all these things so that I could feel either accomplished or accepted. Um, and then there's, there is this, I don't want to say like a God complex, but, uh, you know, I just received my seventh life safety award two days ago. Um, I mean, that's a, I think that's a big accomplishment, it's, and, yeah. you know, but it's did I don't ever go into trying to save someone as this as this God complex. But then there is this level of, you know, if I wasn't born, if I was if I believed in what my family told me, would these seven people be alive? Did I make a huge impact in their life? Um, so there, you know, there are, there are those, uh, there is this level of that going on when you become in an industry, military, police, even a teacher, you know, changing somebody's life. Um, that's a, it's a huge accomplishment, but also it's a, um, it's a burden to bear because when you fail, you now personalize it. Well, and a big thing I think that I've seen a lot is um, when we, like I said, when we, we attract a lot of people, I think, that have got these traumatic pasts. And I think that if that trauma has been processed, it makes you a very good responder because you've seen some shit. You've been through some shit, you right. know. But if it's unaddressed, like I said, that that metaphorical bucket basket, whatever it is is full when you walk through the door the other thing that i see is that if it's unaddressed there's no better profession than the fire service to keep your mind distracted from addressing what's going on in your subconscious and that's when you see i think a lot of the extra shifts being picked up over and over again the husband or wife hardly ever see their family anymore they're working they're doing side hustles because you know, it, it is exciting, especially earlier in your career, you know, and it's so distracting that I th- sadly, I think that's when people retire, get hurt, promote um, or just hit that wall. Finally, that all that you know, Jenga blocks of emotion just come crashing down. You know, there's a lot of um, truth in in that, you know, one of the things that I thought I was an expert in was suppression of feelings. Um. I didn't understand. I I thought that it was a gift. Um, I've been married for 22 years. And in arguments with my wife, I would say what I wanted to say. And I was, I was like liberating, right? I was free of whatever was bothering me. Um, And five minutes later, I was, I was good. You know, my wife is steaming. She is still mad. She is still holding on. I'm like, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? You know? And uh, she's like, dinner? I'm still arguing, you know? And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? Like, legitimately, I would forget that we were even arguing. And I thought that was a gift. Um, and a counselor once told me that I was a super suppressor. I'm like, what is a super suppressor? Is that like a super spreader? Yeah, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's very different than COVID, I guess, you know? Um, no, but she basically said that I buried my pain. I would bury anything that felt uncomfortable. 
And I just kept on burying it and burying it and burying it and burying it. And she's like, you're going to explode. And uh, ironically, she was right. <laughs> um, but that's what I think we do. We've been trained um, in the service, um, whatever it is, whether it be military or EMS or nursing or, doc, you know, being a doctor or um, anything that you see that you should not see. Same with police officers. You get into this level of burying stuff because you can't uh, fully go through an emotion of losing a child, dismemberments, um, the the pain and suffering that the loved ones on scene go through. That sometimes is harder than seeing what we see. And because we start putting ourselves in that position, I have loved ones. I have father-in-laws and mothers and fathers and siblings and things like that. So... When it comes to the aspect of dealing with those situations, um, we suppress them because we have to. You know, it's the whole thing that a firefighter can go to a very bad incident, go back and eat and joke around. And it's because people are like, how can you do it? And it's like, because if we don't do it, we would never finish our job. If we don't joke around at the station, we would never finish the things that we need to do to finish. Because it would be hard to um, hold on to that, internalize it, and try to move. You know, it's it's just difficult to do that. I can't I can't take to heart losing someone every single time because we would never make it. So there is this level of defense that we go through in our heart or in our being, so that we can continue to do our job. While that's a great thing, it becomes a negative later on in life. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's one thing that um, uh, has come up as well. Like when when you're on that dive call, when we're on that you know, mm-hmm. cardiac arrest or make an entry, if your training is where it needs to be, you've already got that level of stress. You know, you're if you're in a, a good mindset, then you. I think a lot of times we do get into a form of flow state. So people are like, how do you do it? It's like, well, we just you know we do. We're in the moment. There's no you know no question. But it's if you're not addressing, if you're not processing it after where the problems come, you know, in the same way you said about suppressing emotion, I think if you're not moved by the trauma we see, that's a huge red flag. These young guys that beat their chest, oh, you know, there was a decapitation, I took a picture of it, oh, let me see, you don't want to see that. Mm -mm. There's no medals for seeing most trauma, and one day that's going to haunt you, you know, so... I think the understanding that we have work mode and then we have back to human being mode and there should be an interaction obviously in an emergency it's pure work mode if it's a patient then you know there's a human element too but if we're not then allowing ourselves to talk and process what we just did that's when you start compounding and compounding. Um, sure. I, you know, I remember being a young firefighter and wanting to run the calls and, you know, hey, I got all these experiences or, or not experiences, but I got all this training that I wanted to use. Um, I wanted to use that training until I saw it, you know, and then, you know, later on being 15 years in, I needed to adjust what I wanted to see, you know, 15 years in, while may not be the longest career ever, man, I've I've seen some stuff that no one should see, you know, um, being a medic for most of it, um, on a medic unit or a rescue, um, 
that's you're running every call. You're going to the hospital every single time. And a lot of times you bear other people's calls because here you are at the hospital, a unit pulls in and they need assistance with their patient to get them into the hospital. Now you're bearing that that call or you're seeing things or being in the hospital when they call a patient and you hear the loved ones in the in the waiting room or you hear the loved ones when they break them the news. That wasn't my call. Um, but I was there. That's a and good point. The ER, a completely different department comes in, but you're a witness to that scene too. That is correct. Uh, I mean, I remember being being at the hospital for an incident with a young a young kid at a school who was stabbed. It wasn't my patient, but he was stabbed at school. They brought him into the hospital while I was there. Um, so you already I have young kids. I already start visualizing my family being in that situation and then when they um when they called him um and then they told the parents who were on the opposite side of the you know florida florida east or the hospital i the blood curdling scream that that mother cried out i still remember i internalized that i can still hear it ringing around my head too from various calls you know what i mean so that wasn't my call but man, it did not take away from the trauma that I took away from that, especially when you have children, when you have loved ones and you start personalizing it, you know, and uh, that, you know, that's it's crazy that I can remember a call that wasn't even mine, Yeah, you know, and uh, just I, uh, I feel like we all like sometimes we say we're, we're shit magnets or black clouds or something like that. I mean, I've had multiple multiple traumas that i wasn't even on the call yeah well we we both we both worked in areas that were very busy too correct you know what i mean so we i think that's it you know when i look back at my career i always put myself in a place where i felt people needed help the most right and of course the more affluent areas absolutely those people need help too but i wanted to be in the place where you know, whether it's financially, whether it's people were homeless, you know, work in the streets, whatever sure. it was, those are the ones I think that needed one of us the most, you know, the, people were going to, the older guys were going to bid the slower, nicer stations. Sure. So they wanted the young, fresh, aggressive firefighters in the places where, you know, shit hits the fan a lot. And, and people in those areas often don't receive compassion, kindness be seen as humans they're labeled they're bums they're hookers they're crackheads sure you know what i mean so but because of that you then have amplified the the number of calls you're going to be exposed to versus had you bid you know out in the stick somewhere and had a you know one or two calls a week call load like some stations do um you know i i I agree i think there's a level of you know sometimes you want those young guys to be into the environment where they're they're the fresh person um to take that abuse and when i say abuse i'm not saying that the the citizens are abusing them but you know they're all there is a level of call volume based on poverty or economic so you know social differences absolutely um and a lot of it has to do with regular care or um, just generalization care, right? So they'll run, uh, let's say they run 20-something calls a shift. Two of them may be a um, uh, may be a real call. And when I say a real call, I'm talking about 
GSWs or, you know, something that they need a med- a medical emergencies right away. Um, and so sometimes I think when you've been on long enough, um, you start to get um, laxed or oh, every call is going to be nothing. Um, and so I believe that there's this this stigma or this uh, knowledge that we get that we create. It's almost like a callus. Um, and when the older guys tend to move out into the outlying stations, it's almost like they went through all that hardship so that they are prepared for when the real calls. And when I say real calls, I mean the detrimental calls. I've had my worst calls at slower stations um, because it's few and far in between. But you got to be jam up when it happens. And that's very easy to be complacent. When it you're is in those very stations. easy to be complacent in the, you know, in the, and I hate to say outlying stations because there are some stations that are pretty busy, but we understand the philosophy or the, the terminology when we use that. Um, you know, I think when it comes to either police officers or firefighters, I think we get um, accustomed to the areas that we're in. Um, we're either tre- treated a certain way and trying to still have a, a professional attitude towards those individuals, but we're dealing with our own mental struggles. Um, and so I think sometimes where we fail is um, from a institutional standpoint is we, we don't help those individuals in that area almost get rewired tried to go back to, Hey, let's, let's get this guy to a clean slate, this guy or gal to a clean slate. Um, and I think that plays a part in, in those roles. I mean, seeing the guys that have been in the really, you know, 20 plus calls a day. Now you're mandatory, man, the mental, the physical wear that it takes on their body. And usually the, the, the stations that you are being mandated to are never the ones that they will run one call. No. You know, you just came off a 20 shift day and here you are running the following next day. You ran four, five, six after midnight. So you didn't get any sleep. So now we're looking at a 24 hour no sleep pattern and we're making you work another 24 hours. I don't think anyone works well when they're exhausted. No, I mean, there's tens and tens and tens of sleep medicine experts and people in related fields that attest to that. I mean, chronically, it's killing us physically and mentally. And then acutely, it's causing mistakes that are ultimately losing either responders' lives or civilians' lives. So there is no upside to it at all. And, and even, even in productivity, if you look in the business space, um, for every hour of sleep you lose, you lose one and a half hours productivity. So this whole, you know, burn the midnight oil, is, there's no science behind it at all. You are less and less productive as you go through, even in that. And we're talking about lives being on our hands, driving code three, opposing traffic, completely sleep deprived, blowing through intersections without realizing it. You know, I mean, these micro sleeps that we get. So there's so much science behind it. And then, you know, you've worked it. I've worked it. I mean, I was battalion four, so I might work at 70 one night, which, you know, is just one click below 50, 51, 42. Mm-hmm. I mean, one minute click, that rescue, um, and then get mandatory to 50 or 51 the next day, you know? So yeah, that's 48 hours. That second night, I mean, you're cross-eyed. And now you're having, you know, that's Murphy's Law. That's when you'll get that pediatric sure. code at three in the morning on that second day. 
and you're praying that the hand heavy is making sense to you at that point or you know <laughs> absolutely so it's terrifying and, it, it, and, it, and that in itself i think creates anxiety in the responder because you know in your heart of hearts that you're not functioning as well as you should even if you're driving shit am i even gonna be able to get us there today sure. i can't even think straight so that adds even more you know stress to you you know i think the level of personal pride of some sort also plays into that um, I always felt that it was never my job to save everyone, but it was my job to give everyone the best possibility to be saved. And when you are already starting negatively in your best possible way, right? I may, I may have come in to work my first shift ready, but I definitely am not ready the next shift. And I know a lot of um, dealing with us, we've tried to help I'm sure when you were working and I were working, you're not, you weren't allowed to sleep. You know, you, it, you were only allowed to, the policy was you had to wait till 10 before you were allowed to go to sleep. Um, and I know they changed some of the policies that like, Hey, we need to give, we need to give some of these guys a nap. They, no one, I don't care how long you've been on. No one should be up for 48 hours. No. Well, you, I mean, you should, if you're in, in buds, you know, Hell Week in the SEAL program. Sure. Or, you know, if you're being interrogated by you know, the CIA. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you see deprivation to break you down. If you're being put in an environment where they think that you're thriving, it couldn't be more backwards. Right. Right. At no point in time, somebody was like, hey, he's been up for 48 hours. He's our man. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, our, our, our gal or whatever. He's, he's, he's the John Wayne of the fire service. That is correct. Man, he does John it every- Wayne was so heroic in, in real war. Right. Said no man ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just the uh, a backwards mentality. And I think there's just so much other aspects and avenues that go into that. Right. Cost. Personnel. You know, how many more personnel do we have to get? How much cost would it cost the taxpayers to make sure that everyone's safe, everybody has enough sleep, you know, things like that. Um, I, I think that that's just the conversation that nobody really wants to have. Well, you know what drives me crazy? Because I'm very lucky that I work for four departments. Mm-hmm. So I got um, you know, a pretty unique lens on the fire service because it wasn't even four local ones. It was, you know, Hialeah down by Miami, then Anaheim, California, and then Orange County, and then the Creek. Um, so even the dynamics of the fire departments, everything from super, super poor, super urban, like Hialeah through to serving a theme park, you know, so, um, but what drives me crazy is in all these departments, you see all these firefighters that die of cancer, that, you know, overdose, suicide, all these things, you see the mistakes that some of us make, whether it's wrecks, whether it's pushing the wrong meds, you know, all these things from, from that and you think about the cost on the back end and then you look at how much it would be just to add another shift and it's not even an entire shift because usually if you have like orange county you have more vacation to try and kind of make up for the fact that the the, the work week sucks right and you don't even have a kelly day then you can negotiate some of that way because now you've got that extra day off but you would you would save and i put this to all these sleep medicine people again you would save hand over fist. But what drives me crazy is people say, oh, but it's complicated. No, it's not. The, the civilian world has pretty much accepted that the work week is 40 hours. And yet the people that you're asking to drive, again, license sirens, opposing traffic, 
with a three-year-old pediatric code in the back being worked at three in the morning, you won't give them the same working environment that you will the bank teller, the person at Publix. Correct, yeah. You know, so it doesn't make any sense and it's yeah. not complicated at all. Boca does it. The Northeast does it. The industry standard. I don't care if you're a busy urban department or you're out in Podunk, wherever, and you run one call every three weeks. It should still be 2472. Right. You know, the, the trucking industry has sleep standards. The airline industry has sleep standards. And yet, in the shipping industry, naval fleets, but the fire service, we are fine working our men and women into the ground. And it just, it, there's no sense behind it at all. It's not complicated. It just takes someone with a set of balls to stand up or all of us together to stand up and say enough is enough. Yeah, it has to be, you know, everything has to be publicly driven um, or accepted. Right. So um, to put pressure on politics, you know, the politicians in your local communities, um, because it's never talked about in the federal high federal level. Um, I, you know, I'm a firm believer in, uh, you know, all these people, they argue and they talk about a president, woo, you know, I'm like, bro, your, your commissioners are more important than anything else. Your local mayor, your local governor, like those are more important that you have to push some of these, um, these statistical, um, information that we need out there. So for mental health and one of the biggest things, even when I went to the center for treatment was, Hey, your sleep is the root for us to help you get better. But that was their fir- like the first thing I walked into was, hey, we got to work on your sleep so that you can stay focused enough so you can be rejuvenated. So you are aware or alive enough to be able to handle what you're going to go through here to help with your mental illness. And um, I think that is a start, you know, working on people, getting people CPAPs, getting people sleep studies. Um, you know, I, they're so scared of these sleep studies. And it's like, listen, I'm not talking about sleep patterns. I'm just talking about getting guys when they're sleeping a good sleep. Would you remember the county did a sleep study and then they were like, yeah, you need sleep. Sure. That's the problem. Right. We don't need you to prove what we already know. Sure. We need solutions. And it's funny when you talk about sleep deprivation, I challenge anyone listening, go find a cheap cruise pay for the cheapest room the one inside with no windows or anything don't put any led in there go to sleep see how long you sleep i guarantee you'll probably wake up at like three in the afternoon the next day that's the only sleep study you need if you're a firefighter police officer dispatcher you know junior doctor resident you don't even need to do that we all know that we are chronically sleep deprived. Yeah. So it's not proving it that's the issue. It's Mm-mm. what do we do next? What do we do with that information? Um, and I think, you know, listening to the guys snore when they are sleeping, they're not sleeping. They're not rest. They're, 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 it's not restful sleep. They're, um, it's broken sleep. They're stop, you know, they stop breathing several times a night. They start choking. And that's even when they're getting asleep, it's not sleep. So I think a lot of it has to go in there. They wake up in the morning. They're already exhausted. Um, I know that even if I sleep through the night at the fire station, um, which is a blessing, I'm exhausted. Yeah, because you've been waiting to be woken up the whole I, time. I have. And without that phrase, one eye open, I mean, that's literally what it is. Yeah. And I tell people, like, imagine if someone had big symbols and they said, at some point, I'm going to smash them in your ear holes. How would you sleep? Yeah, you're you waiting know? for it. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, yeah. you're never in that deep restorative sleep, that parasympathetic sure. state, because you can't be. You know, because literally you might get banged out to that true immersion call and you will actually be pulling out the bay 
90 seconds after your eyes open. Absolutely. You know, so yeah, it's crazy. Well, you mentioned about the center. So let's, um, let's talk about some of the acute calls that you mentioned. You said you were in a dive rescue team. I know there was yep. an element of that. Not just saying that was an issue because we have all the, the stuff that you brought into the, the service. You have the sleep deprivation. You have mm-hmm. an apartment that works 56, no Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about some of those acute calls and then kind of walk me through your mental health, um, you know, descent and then we'll get to the, the center. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, man, you, you can just think of all the calls that you've run on, um, that we're not supposed to see. You know, I'm, I remember standing there with a leg in my arm going or my hands going, this, I'm not supposed to be holding someone's leg. Like I'm saying that to myself as I'm running down the street to give it, you know, at the time when I was an EMT. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it goes to what happens in your life and then you take to work. And um, I think one of the biggest things and that changed my life was the dive call that I had off of the 417. Um, and it was a dive call before we even had a dive team. Um, and vehicle goes into the water, uh, excuse me, a retention pond, crosses lanes of traffic, citizens on scene, try to get her out, busted out her back window. The car sinks like a lead rock. Um, I arrive on scene. There's debris everywhere on the scene, um, on, on top of the water. It's children's, um, um, like toys, toys and things like that, like a nursery bag or a diaper bag, things like that. And, you know, immediately I start internalizing it. I'm like, I have at the time I have a, you know, three-year-old and a, and a four-year-old. Um, and I just immediately in my mind, I was a lifeguard for, you know, six, seven years. I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta go in the, you know, go in the water. And, um, I know that our policy at the time was we were just surface water rescuers. We can't break the surface. I remember we that. We can't break the surface of the plane, you know. And, and so we had a boat at our station, and that it, was still the rule same, for same, us. Same with us, yeah. uh, 71. That's the reason why we were there. Um, we got It wasn't even in our area. It was in 76's area. We got called because their boat was out of service. Right. So they call us, the rescue, myself and uh, Zambito. We jump into the rescue and uh, take this boat out to the call. And we get on scene, and I'm a... I'm an act right away, walk up right up to command. I'm like, Hey, do you want somebody in the water? He's like, yep. So I start getting ready to go into the water, but I go into the water the way the County had trained us fully uniformed with a vest. You know, I remember going in and uh, Felix Marquez from Orlando was like, Whoa, 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 let me put you up on this rope. He puts me on a rope. I get a center punch. I get a buoy. You know, I go into the water. The ironic thing is the, it's the coldest day in Orange County or one of the coldest days in Orange County. It's freezing, you know, and here I am trying to save somebody surface water wise. And that car is underwater by a lot of feet. And, you know, there's this complex and or this argument that's happening in my head going policy versus someone's life. You know, and because uh, it's hard to dive with a life jacket. It on. is. I mean, every single time I was making, I was making an effort because I was using my body weight to go up and then submerge down. So I still was in within policy, and I'm having this this battle in the water. Going, Alex, do you come out of your vest? You know, um, and that's a, a horrible place to be put in. To hey, do I violate policy to try to save somebody's life? What happens? Will I be fired? I mean, these things are going on in my head well an orange county has a history of doing just that and our policy manual is what thicker than the yellow pages so sure and you know listen I, I get it um if they have a policy it's hard for them not to push for it you know what i mean hey you violated this policy it is a policy i get it um even if you saved the life 
and I'm not saying it's right, but I understand it. Yeah. You know but, what I mean? Again, me being out of the county now, right. having seen some of the things. Sure. Even I was one of the ones written up with the drive cam thing. Right. Like days before they retracted everything. Correct. And that write up stayed in my file, even though they reversed it. Right. You know, so yeah, there was, there was some people in there that, as you said, you're faced with, you know, saving a life. And I had like Danny Dwyer on the show, who's a the Georgia fireman that right. made that grab, but it was, you know, not technically you know within two policy. in yeah, yeah. He, went, he went in a few feet on his own and the department threw him under the bus you right. know so not being attached to a department anymore i can say there's times where our policy gets in the way of the actual core of what we're doing and i get safety but the same way as police aren't trained to fight fire but we post heroic videos of them making mm-hmm. saves from car wrecks right. and give them medals but a firefighter deviates from policy and we get written up and lose our jobs. Yeah. I, I think it's bullshit. Well, I, you know, I had a lot of, um, I, I remember sitting down with the the current chief at the time and I remember, cause it was real emotional, that whole call, um, for me. And I remember saying the statement to them was that, you know, we risk a lot to save a lot. We risk a little to save little. And I said, uh, that individual meant a lot to her family. I go, I was willing to die in that call so that her family could see her again. And yes, would that be sad for my family? Absolutely. But my family knows that I was trying to do my best to come home. Yeah. But it is my job to save someone. And what's important is you mentioned that you've been lifeguard for several years. I was lifeguard for several years. So it would be different if it was someone that was very, very incapable in the water being foolish sure you're weighing up your training and you're learning back and go, i've made rescues before without any of this gear correct you know multiple times so right. i'm using that in this decision process absolutely and i think a lot of it had to do with too was that i'm like i have this skill that i'm not allowed to use because it wasn't recognized in this department um and so you know just being able to um you know get to the point in the trauma of that call um, visibility was probably less than six inches. It's a retention pond. It's dirty. It's nasty. Um, you know, I'm sticking my face underwater. Um, I came out of my vest a little bit to try to get as deep as I possibly could. Um, but then to a point where the hyperthermia set in, I was unable to move my hands. I wasn't able to move my feet. I was basically, it got to the point where I was just a bob floating in the water and I thought I was going to die. Um, you know, luckily for me that, uh, the boat was there. Um, and, um, Zambito and Wyatt pulled me into the boat where I had no, I mean, they literally pulled me in my body completely shut down. I had no, I could control nothing. Um, and the, there's so many things that went wrong on that call, you know, and I was put into a rehab. They stripped me, they put me in bunker, somebody else's clothes and try to get me warm and, a dive team came from another department, pulled this patient out, put him in the back of my rescue, but then they put somebody from another department in the back of my rescue to work this code, which means that they didn't know where anything was. And so they pulled me out of my rescue, put me in the back of the rescue. I was rehabbing Mm -hmm. just everything was just going so fast. And we worked this code to the hospital. And, um, I remember like sitting there like, this is, I I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on. Like, this was a weird motion. And, you know, we get to the hospital, we, we bring her back. Um, and I remember the medic um, from Orlando said to me, um, 
that we got her back, man. We got her back. And I remember this heat sensation going up my legs, coming up, crawling up my stomach, going up to my shoulders. And I'm looking up my shoulders. And then by the time that heat feeling got to my eyes, I was I was bawling in the middle of the hospital. I have no shoes on. I'm in bunker pants and a bunker coat naked underneath. Um, I had worked this code to the hospital um, and I'm bawling in the middle of the ER. Um, and then when I people are like, are you OK? And I'm like. Um, I can't see. And they're like, what do you mean you can't see? You know, you have crying. And I'm like, no, I can't see. Well, the effects of the water, the the bacteria and everything in the water were in my eyes. And so I had to get admitted um, because my eyes swole up. They swole shut completely. Oh, and wow. I ended okay. up having to uh, sit at the hospital with those, uh, you know, the, the, the forceps or the, 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 like the contact lenses with the, um, with the tubes on them and they're flushing your eyes for hours. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And that's torture just to let you know. <laughs> um, and you know, um, at right after that, when I got, you know, when I got out of the hospital, things were, um, you know, I go home and I, I start having these dreams and these dreams were, um, the woman that we saved who ended up passing away later on, um, that I was, night. I was going to say, cause by the time, 71 got banged out now their boat is out of service now you get banged out obviously you're crossing multiple first dues correct and that's after this has even been called in even though it's cold water i mean sure, I'm sure she was down sure. a long time and yeah, then she was she was down team. there and by the time or uh, orlando one got there um yeah sure um and so she ends up passing and my i just started having these dreams where she was under the water and I was banging on, or she was banging, excuse me, she was banging on the window and I'm swimming to her and it's like this everlasting swim to her, but I'm not moving. And she's banging on the windows um, saying, why are you letting me die? And that is a dream that I had every night for months. I would wake up in a cold sweat. My wife's like, are you okay? And, and I'm, I was scared to go to bed because the moment I closed my eyes, I knew I was going to see that. I didn't tell anybody because um, early on in my career, I was told never to say anything. You know, I'm like, hey, man, I feel this way. And they're like, yeah, you need to you need to suppress that and never tell anybody again. I'm like, OK, <laughs> you know, as a new guy, you know, and uh, it was months, months and months and months and months that I just held on to that. And that's what started this downward spiral for me. Well, it's that inability to save. I talk about a lot as well. Like I was, you talked about the black cloud and I've talked about this numerous times on here. But, you know, I, I never had a code save 14 years. I was just that guy. I had the brain bleeds, the horrendous GI bleeds, you know, the triple A's, all these, all these things you don't come back from. But just before we progress, I think what's interesting at 70 when I was there. So again, I had this lifeguarding background. We got there, you know, I was assigned to the station and kudos to John Byrne, who's my LT. We would go out and train all the time. We'd take it in turns to tow the boat back, you know, back down the ramp, drive and then me and one of the other guys, Wayne Dormany, both had lifeguarding experience. And so we were like, well, hey, these backboards that we have on dry land, they're not going to work in the water. You know, these tape, this tape doesn't work to hold the head. You know, mm -hmm. you need, we need specific ones. And what terrified me is you had to take training to do the brush track stuff. Right. You didn't need any training for the boat. So someone could float in, didn't even know how to swim. And you're the person that's going to be driving a boat, backing it down the ramp, putting it in driving safely to a patient, diving in, you know, backboarding them, and then taking them back out. That's a huge, huge skill set. So I just want to say kudos to Chief Droz when he got there. 
I was one of obviously many voices that were, were saying this. And right before I left is when we started doing the skin diver training and then it progressed to the full dive team. But that's another part of the story. Had you been there in the right capacity with the right training and the right equipment from the get-go, doesn't mean you would have saved that woman's life necessarily, but you wouldn't, I don't think, have that inability because you would have been able to at least get down and facilitate the risk of yourself. So, you know, we have that, like we talked about, you know, risk a lot to save a lot. What's even better is if you have the tools to do the job too. Chief Droads changed that and kudos to him, even though sadly he was booted out recently and, you know, it breaks my heart for Orange County for that. But there's a, there's a lesson to be learned there too. You know, that there were improvements made that increased the ability for us to, to save a life because we were ill-equipped for those kind of rescues before and we had war everywhere in Orange County. Yeah, you know, I think that, um, uh, and I, I am, you know, I am very thankful to Chief Drills um, to implement those and with Brandon Allen and uh, Dormany um, pushing out the teams and coming in with the skill sets that they have to be able to uh, do the things that they needed to do to ensure that that wouldn't happen again. Um, yeah, having having the skill set goes back to my mindset that I would say that it wasn't my job to save everybody, but it is my job to give the best opportunity to save everybody. Exactly. You know, and I'm, I, I am thankful that we still have the dive team and that it is still a, a, a vital uh, part of what we do. Um, and that the, you know, the current administration still supports it and, um, they're, they're behind it. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that because I'm sorry, but a new administration could come in easily and say, no, we're not doing that anymore. Um, and, that is important to me at least, you know, and uh, just being on, as a diver and the multiple times, I'm not even on a dive unit and I've dived multiple times, you know, and uh, this area over here has so many retention ponds. It's just a car there. Almost sometimes I feel like they're a magnet waiting for a vehicle to go in. Um, it's, it's amazing how many times we've had so many vehicles in water in this, in this part of area. Um, we've had one of the most amazing saves in this area. Um, so it, it being well prepared, being, you know, um, for those things is, is what we need to do. The unfortunate part of that is it's just very similar to like street signs and street lights. Hey, you really need a street light there. Yeah. Yeah. We need a street light there. That's a very, very dangerous corner. Somebody gets into a wreck, somebody dies. Oh, now there's a light, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the unfortunate part is sometimes people have to be some sacrifice to almost prove that, yes, I wasn't wrong. Yeah, unless about, it's unless it's firefighters losing their life, and then we'll just keep doing the same shit over and over again. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Um, so yeah, um, it, that was what the was the start of my demise mentally, um, and I think that was just more of an impact. I, it got to the point where I was full, my tank was full, um, and you put this tr truly traumatic incident where I didn't know what was happening to my body. Was I going to die? I had come to terms that I was going to die there. Um, I said goodbye to my wife. I said goodbye to my kids. Um, that's tough because I really thought I was going to die. I couldn't feel anything. My face started to go into the water. I was trying to do my best to, you know, if it wasn't for um, uh, Chris Zambito and uh, Randy White who pulled me into the boat, I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure I'd be fine today, but I don't know. But in my mind, when you're in that moment, you don't think that. You think that you're going to die. And um, I had come to terms with it. It was weird when you come to terms with that because now that sticks with me because I've been to a place where I came to terms with I was going to die on a call and I was young 
Um, and so uh, that's tough to have that mental thing that, all right, well, I was, my wife was almost going to have no husband and my children were going to have no father. Um, so that, that worn on me. Um, and the, and the, and the responsibility that I had to that patient in my mind. So I've been driving my whole self to this, you know, up to this point was I have to do everything that I can so that this will never happen to parents again. You know, I, I made a promise to her and her parents and they don't even know it. I never talked to them, you know, that, uh, since 2010 or 11 that I've driven my, I've made a point in my life to make her daughter proud and everything I did, man, talk about personalization, personalizing something. I had no, I, I didn't have to do that, you know, but the, in my mind, I felt like I had to do this, you know? And so that's been driving me in everything that I've done. You know, I always have this motto that um, the woman who raised me, she passed away in 2012. And that was very rough for me because she was my backbone, right? She took me in when I was on the streets. And uh, so I have this mantra, um, same with Camden, you know, Kibler, Steve Kibler's son. Um, so there's these three people that I hold my life to that I say, make them proud in everything that I do. I don't know if that's a good thing. Um, it is because I've done some amazing things, but no, no, none of them ask me to do that. You know, so I'm putting this pressure on myself to to be something. And then now I'm holding myself to a this unknown standard, you know, because I had to justify something. Um, so it's, you know, it, 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 I think that was the, the start of my uh, and I, I want to say the start of my downfall, but the start of what was recognizable, like, holy smokes, there's something wrong um, until current day, you know, whatever. Well, just before we progress from there, I want to talk about that just for a second. So obviously, Steve Kibler came on, told his story. He lost his beautiful little boy, Camden, to mm -hmm. pediatric cancer. Yep. Um, how did you become involved? Because you ended up doing, you know, the, a lot of the fundraising um, bike rides. <laughs> and so what was that relationship? So, um, it, you know, it's an interesting story. So Camden was born on February 28th and my oldest son is February 28th. And so when Steve was going through what he was going through, it was too close to me. Like it, like mentally, I'm like, I can't, I can't immerse myself into this because they're, they're so close in age. They have the same birthday. Um, and I, I just couldn't bear that, that pain. Right. So I couldn't bear, um, someone else's pain. Um, and so, few years after uh, Camden had passed, um, I, I wanted to do something memorable and I wanted to lose weight. And uh, I remember seeing Steve at the hospital one day and I went up to him and I said, hey, man, um, you know, I'd love to lose weight. And, uh, you know, as Steve, you know how Steven is, he's like, uh, listen, I'm not this model of physique for nothing, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, no, I don't need tips from you, Steven. Um, but, uh, he said, uh, I mean, I told him, I said, listen, I want to honor your son. So I'm going to raise money for people to help me lose weight. And I want to donate it to an organization that helped your son in your son's name. Um, and, you know, he thought it was cool. And, uh, you know, and that's how we, you know, got together. And um, I ended up losing weight. Um, we donated, I think it was $700 to um, base camp here in Orlando that helped him out tremendously. They're a great organization for um, pediatric uh, illnesses. And they uh, so once that occurred, we just built this like this bond and this relationship. And, you know, I felt like it was a goal of mine to help Stephen uh, not not fight this or deal with this alone. And so I just came with my overzealous knowledge of things because I've 
done everything, uh, marketing and just design. And so I created all the, 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 the logos and the things that, you know, with his approval and, uh, my wife works at a printing company. And so we had the printing stuff done and my sister-in-law is a graphics artist and she, you know, did all the, the, the artwork and things like that. And so, um, to what we know it today as, so, um, he, he was able to take me on his journey, you know, and I was able to do the things that I needed to do to, um, to help him with that. And so we just went around the country doing charity, be charity events and, um, um, raising money for cancer. We ride in the Camden 160, which, you know, well, we always did the 160 miles for Camden because he lived 160 days, um, in 24 hours. Um, it never was named anything. And so we came up with the Camden 160. So now it's a challenge for people to try to ride 160 miles in a day. Um, my son joined around 12 years old. Um, and, you know, kind of smart remark was, I was like, Hey man, how many miles are you going to do? He's like, uh, duh, 80 the Camden half and then the Camden, <laughs> you know, so the Camden half was created. Um, then we wanted to do something to help challenge people more. And so we came up with the Camden ultra and the Camden ultra was February 28th to 228 miles in 24 hours. Um, and then for those crazy, crazy guys, we came up with the Camden extreme, which was, uh, to, you know, basically three twenty. Um, so we call that the Camden Extreme. Five people actually have completed that one. Um, and so, you know, that's we just in 24 hours, in 24 we? hours. Wow. Yeah. I struggle to do that in my Nissan Sentra. Absolutely. <laughs> I have, you know, my, my sweet, sweet Saturn. I don't even know if I can get that much in 24 <laughs> hours, you know, um, definitely without filling up again. Um, but, uh, being able to be part of that um, has been a great accomplishment in my life. And I, 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 I poured so much energy and effort into that. Sometimes I kind of pushed away my mental. It gave me something to do. Right. I, it, I had this driving force that I was able to to um, to put my energy towards and help raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for cancer or pediatric cancer and traveling had me an opportunity to travel the United States. And I had never been out of Florida other than being raised in, or excuse me, being born in Springfield, Massachusetts and moving down here. So I've met amazing people. Um, the bad part is you've been part of people who have passed away from cancer. You, you immerse yourself <laughs> into this, more. Yeah. you know, you immerse yourself into, um, people's lives. I created, uh, um, the honor bikes, um, where we are, they're writing memorials. Basically, we you know put people's names on them who are battling cancer, who survived cancer, who passed away from cancer, and so the the stories that you get from that, you're now bearing other people's burdens. And so, while it was an amazing thing to do, I think it also added to my um, my heartbreak. My, my yeah, it was just more more horrible stuff to add. But I felt that I you remember I told you I felt that I needed to absorb people's misery so that they didn't have to. So I was going around almost. And again, I didn't have this God complex, but I did. Yeah. You know, so, but it was, it was, you know, it's been amazing, amazing experience. Um, being there for somebody and trying to touch somebody's life with everything that you have. Um, even when life wasn't fair to me. Yeah. Well, know? just for people listening as well, I forget the episode numbers, forgive me, but Stephen Kibler, is one incredibly powerful story of Camden and the way he passed away is just, um, there won't be anyone that didn't, if you don't cry, then you're not human. And another one is Joshua Jukes in, um, in Hawaii. His son trucker died and he was, 
uh, God, forgive me. I think it's three or four, but way, way, way too, too young. Um, and, uh, yeah, both those, I think they're absolute must lessons because I'm, I'm so fortunate as of today, I've got two very healthy sons, you know, mm. and I'm so blessed. So, you know, understanding that the heartache that happens outside the fire service and some of these families and what they go through is, is something that we all need to be aware of and we need to listen to their stories. You know, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it's an interesting, you know, I've been friends with, you know, Stephen for, for many, many years and he's my best friend. And, um, it, it's, we don't talk on February 28th. It's just, you know, I have my son. He doesn't have his son. And while there's never been a, he felt, you know, uh, you know, how dare you have your son? You know, we, we send good messages to each other for that day. And, you know, I love him and love his son and what he's meant to me. And, you know, he'll say the same thing back, but we let, we let that day, we let that day go, you know, because I know there is a reality that my son is 19 years old today. Um, and Camden is, um, is, is not here. Um, doesn't mean that his impact isn't still being spread, but, um, I think there is this level of respect when it comes to that. And it's every year, you know, and uh, it, it, it will never change. And um, but I know we've done some good. I know we um, have made this child um, last his memory last. I mean, there's people still talk about this kid today and he's been gone for so long. Um, but the impact that you can have on one in your heart is is amazing. Um, so. The idea that, you know, to, to, to burden somebody, to take someone's burden, excuse me, um, is what we do. I think that's a, a that's an afterthought. I, I didn't I didn't go out and say, hey, let me let me throw this guy's burden on my back. It just we seek that and we do it this, you know, un, uh, like without even knowing. I mean, how many charity events do we do throughout the fire service and the, the, the children's burn center and the things that we do um, all for the name of charity, um, cancer, breast cancer awareness month, mental health, children, you know, fill it just, the boot. Fill the boot. Yeah. MDA. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many, um, we've done it for years. Firefighters have done it for years. If they're not helping somebody, they're not living in their mind. Um, and that's the the unfortunate part about those situations when you deal with is those things. You know what I'm saying? So um, that's, you know, that's going back to that is what I feel that we do as a, you know, intentional or it, I think we do it intentionally, but I think it's a, a subconscious thing. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing when we talk about police and fire and sadly law enforcement's got a, a bad rap, but I mean, they're just good people that actually want to make the world better. I don't know about you. I think that's why I find it so infuriating when I see the narcissism, the selfishness, the self-serving, whether it's in politics, whether Mm -hmm. it's in business, because it smacks against everything that we stand for. And then to accuse someone who kisses their husband or wife goodbye in the morning or the evening, straps on a gun belt or, you know, throws on a firefighter uniform or medic uniform, um, or pr- corrections uniform and goes and protects complete strangers whilst leaving their family. You know, I mean, that's, that's what a police officer or a firefighter, you know, medic, that's, that's who they are, you know, and that's why I do this because they're an amazing group of men and women. You know, I think the, the unfortunate part, um, about society at this point right now is, um, 
the way people are, my, like myself, um, you know, I, I've never considered myself this minority, right? Yeah, I'm Hispanic and um, a person of color. You know, that's the new the new term that I am apparently these days. Um, I can't call you beige. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or, uh, you know, I always used to say I'm just a white person with a good tan. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I most, didn't have, most of us try and get a yeah, good tan. I didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't even have to pay for this. <laughs> it just comes natural. My wife, it drives her nuts. Um, but, you know, the unfortunate part is we, we don't, it's bad to say that all Hispanics do this. All Hispanics carry a knife. All Hispanics have unwedded, you know, uh, children, uh, you know, that are just, you know, we're not married and we do these things. Those, that's racist. That's horrible to say. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to sit there and say all cops are bad or all firefighters do this or all firefighters are pigs or all firefighters are, you know, whatever. You know, we can put in the stereotype of the idea of what people, the pressure that people have put on us. You know, I remember being in a situation where um, something bad happened to a family member and people called me from my family, you know, my extended extended family and called me like, we got to do something about this. And I'm like, okay, let's pump the brakes and say this. If we do something and we get in trouble, this is how it's going to read. Firefighter and three others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? I because always said, if, if, and this was true working here, if we did something right, Orlando firefighter, blah, blah, blah. Correct. If we did something wrong, Orange, Orange County, County. Fire- Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and so I think, you know, the, the, the stigma that the media puts on us, um, that, you know, they elevate us to this extent, you know, people... I mean, think about this. And this is what's weird. In this country currently, you can have somebody protesting at a defund the police rally, get injured and scream for a police. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's how odd (laughs) society is today. Um, And, you know, I think the idea of bad cops, bad firefighters, bad nurses, bad doctors, bad. Sure. I get that idea. We don't we don't put anyone else in a bucket except for those people, military people. Um, you know, one guy does something bad and I'm not even saying he's a bad he or she is a bad person. We don't know that circumstance. We don't know the pressure that one person has been in to make a right or wrong decision, especially with emotions. Yeah. Well, right? I mean, I talk about this, too. No one talks about the level of training in some of these instances. No one talks about how many shifts that person did prior to that event. That is correct. You know what I mean? So there's all these compounding elements and, you know, that's never discussed. And and there are some absolute, you know, I'll, I'll say the George Floyd, I talk about it a lot. That was completely wrong, especially as there were multiple people on the scene. Absolutely. As you know, we've had times where, you know, someone that's a higher rank than us is just wrong. And either you, I mean, like, perfect example, the engine, some fucking idiot is the lt that day mm-hmm. being a complete asshole to mm-hmm. the patient and you're like all right i'll tell you guys you can clear i'm good you really need that manpower but they're more sure. of a detriment they are a help mm-hmm. and so you de-escalate that situation bring them in the rescue calm them down kind of pseudo apologize almost and then you know get them back to the way they should be treated sure. so we've all been there mm-hmm. and that didn't happen on that particular call sure but a lot of those gray area calls you know the, the reaching into the glove box 
sleep deprived, three in the morning, being forced to work extra shifts, your wife's leaving you. I mean, all these things combined doesn't make it right that that person died. Nope. But you have to be fair and bring all these in and say, sure. well, what environment was this person given? Correct. The woman that just shot instead of tasing that person the other day. Yeah. What did the training records look for her? Had she trained under duress? Right. I'm not saying, you know, there's an ownership part too. Sure. But we've got to bring all of those elements yeah. in, not just throw that one person under the bus and said, you fucked up, but we as the department are fine. Right. No, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, you know, somebody always has to be held accountable, right? Because mistakes are, are, are hard because nobody is accountable, right? A mistake is a mistake. And that's the unfortunate part about societal pressures. Um, you know, I, I had the misfortune, fortune, I guess, to uh, crack somebody. And I remember um, sitting while I'm doing this and in my head, I'm like, okay, did I do it? it this was the right move. I know it was the right move. I've been a firefighter paramedic for over 10 years at this time, you know, 11 years. I've had volumes of calls and I'm like, this is the right moment to crack this individual. And as I'm cutting this woman's throat, I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do? Am I getting in trouble? Am I doing this right? Am I, is this, you know, it, will the media get this and will this person survive? Will this work? I mean, everything is going through my mind as I'm trying to do my job. Yeah. And this, that's what this, we talked about woman, earlier with, this, with, with that, you know, moment to save. Sometimes all these rules, regs, procedures correct. can absolutely handcuff the individual from making the right decision. Absolutely. You know, I think there's this level of um, accepted error rate in jobs except for this, these types of industries. And I truly get it. I understand, but we're not super people. We're not robots either. Right. We're not, we're, 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 we're just people trying to do our jobs, um, to save somebody's life or just prolong their life. You know, I always felt that my goal was to tell people, um, or to save people, or at least to bring them back so the family can say bye, even if it was, um, you know, they never regain consciousness or anything like that. So, um, you know, it's a tough situation to be put in to make those life altering decisions. And I always like to say, I never want to put my, um, I never want to make that decision or put someone, let someone else determine my life. Um, it's the reason why I respect police so much. Um, even if they were a bad cop, you know, I, I, you know, I, I've heard the statement, you know, the whole comply or die kind of thing. And it's like, listen, my, I want to be in charge of my life. Right. So I'm going to do everything I need to do. And if there I was mistreated at that point, we'll discuss it afterwards with administration and whether it's legal or not legal. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. All I'm saying is I'm alive during this situation. And I used to I tell my son that all the time as a Hispanic male. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to have a six foot one son while I'm a good five, seven on a good day on Mars in heels. Um, yeah. In <laughs> heels. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, I, I, I tell them, I tell him that all the time. I was like, listen, we'll deal with it on the other end, whether they mistreat you or not, you just comply, do what needs to be done so that you're safe. And I'm not saying that again, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. I'm not going to say that he's a hundred percent sure, but Let's try to control our own destiny on on this situation, um, and hopefully we can make it out of you know okay. Um, but I, I think the same thing happens in the fire service when we mistreat patients and things like that. Um, like you said, nobody takes into consideration were they tired, were they on the forty eight, did they have zero sleep, were they even trained on that? 
Did, was it was good training done? I think a lot of training has to be revamped these days. Children are different. People are different. Well, and hiring standards too. We've seen the, the standard lower and lower, still getting some good people in. But when you have that 18 and a heartbeat mentality, bums on seats, yeah. what do you think that's going to do as you pay forward? And I saw that in my last place. There was no standard at all. We just have to pass a CPAT, which is a joke. Take a little written test, sit down, tell them what you want to do in that department. Tell them that you're hoping to, you know, be a positive change. And then when yep. you get in there, they don't want you to be a positive change. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but then what happens? Those people become engineers, become lieutenants, become captains, sure. become chiefs. And now you have the systemic problem. Sure. So the other, I think we need more rest. We need more training. Mm -hmm. And we need to put the bar right back up. Mm -hmm. We need to have an annual fitness standard. We need all these things that all the other professions that hold us to the same level, special operations, even, even I've had some lifeguards on Hawaiian lifeguards. They have annual fitness standards. They have to pass their swim tests over and over again. They train every shift. But God forbid you mention that to some stations in, in fire service, you know, yeah. and that's the other problem. So if we're hiring good, good fired up people and then we're training them well and then we're giving them the appropriate rest and recovery. And then let's take the civilians. We're creating an environment where we, they're making less crime in the world. Right. Maybe we look at drug prohibition. Maybe we addicts aren't criminals. Maybe they're medical patients. Sure. And now you can attack it from both sides. Yeah. But that's never in the conversation. No. You know, I you either hate blacks or you hate cops and pick a side and, right. you know, get in the trench. Right. You know, we'll, we'll play football at Christmas Day. But apart from that, just keep firing at each other. Yeah. You know, stupid. So stupid. It, it, it's popular to argue. You know what I mean? Like it's in this extent, instead of, you know, agreeing to disagree, you know, that was the statement that we used to say back in the day. Now we, we attack people. And, you know, when we start throwing liberal and conservative, even in the fire service, you're just adding another layer of frustration. You're adding another layer of a mental game that you're playing with. It's, a, it's what we like to call cognitive distortion that we, we uh we push and this this lie that we tell ourselves for everything oh we don't need to put any work in too if i just say ah oh, it's because of biden uh it's because of trump sure you snowflake you fascist right. whatever well i can sit here in my lazy boy with my it's, cheetos and everything lazy yeah or you can roll your sleeves up first you know help your household secondly step out your front door and try and do something good in your neighborhood mm -hmm. if we all did that Again, we would change the world. Sure. Or you can sit behind your keyboard like a pussy and throw hate at people and absolutely do nothing positive to the world whatsoever. Actually, you're making it worse. Sure. And, and people don't necessarily realize that. And I think the media doesn't... Um doesn't you know help i you know i was one of my mottos is the three things wrong with the country is the far right the far left and the media who perpetuates the hate in between well the media is sole focus is to sell advertising space sure. when you think about that and the healthcare you know the pharmaceutical industry wants sick people they're a profit-based system of course it's going to be completely disastrous look yeah. at the look at the nucleus of both of those entities mm -hmm. neither of them are focused on making the world better they're both focused on making it worse worse so they can sell more stuff sure. and make more money to maintain yeah money and greed yeah so i think a lot of that you know when you personalize um, most of those things it doesn't help 
um, the mental um, state of the fire department, man, you start adding, you start adding all the home issues and the political issues and um, what you see at work. And while some people can handle it because they don't have that aspect in their job, they don't have that lack of sleep. They don't have the, um, the save somebody's life. I mean, you, my wife works in an office environment. If somebody passes out, everybody loses their mind just because they passed out. I'm like passing out. That, that's that's a cakewalk for mm-hmm. us that's a that's a refusal <laughs> yeah that is a refusal you know what i mean so you know it's it, but to my wife and to to validate her day that's 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 huge for her you know because that doesn't happen the the, the normal that's not normal for her and so um i think these outside triggers or outside um uh, things that we allow to bother us are part of the part of the issue with mental um health in the in the department or in and in, in reality, mental health. Period. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I, I don't want to just say for the firefighters or police officers or anything like that because in regular business offices and people have mental illnesses and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, well, it, is, it, is, it is what it is in that aspect. So well, then let's get back onto onto your journey again. Okay. So you had that dive call. You started getting the nightmares. Kind of lead me through, you know, that as you said, decline to to the point where you realize that you needed help um i think you know so i had that decline um but i still had um the woman who helped raise me um rhonda and she was very vital for me you know um when things went bad i could call her i wouldn't tell my wife i would tell her and you know when she passed in 2012 my whole world came crashing down because i did not have my backbone my rock um, and you know, some people are like, how come your wife wasn't your rock? And I'm like, that was intentional. Um, because I, I felt like I needed my wife to be fresh, um, so that, uh, she wasn't bearing the same cross that I was bearing, um, in the same household. And so, um, when she passed away, I didn't have anything, you know, I didn't have any counselors. I didn't have any, you know, it was, it was just crazy to me. I lost those, I lost my savior. Um, and then work started, you know, um, becoming harder and harder. And, you know, I was on a box. I was at, you know, station 71. Um, while I had an amazing crew, no sleep, transporting all the time. Um, I started getting jaded, um, having kids, which was rough, you know, they're, they're starting to grow and, you know, be there became, uh, you know, what I can so that I can provide for my family. And, um, we were, you know, we took in my father-in-law who um, had a couple heart attacks while he was here visiting and never left. Um, and that was, you know, 16, almost 17 years ago. And uh, so, you know, you it's just added burdens onto that, um, on that call. Um, I think there's just a combination of me putting myself out there, trying to absorb everyone. Um I know the, you know, cause I can speed up through, um, this, you know, coming up to this year, you know, COVID didn't help. I mean, there was just such a weird vibe about that and the types of calls that we were running and, um, you know, again, the whole politics of it and, uh, trying to do our job, but try to be safe in the, the representation of what we feel is COVID as opposed to what the, the citizens think is, is COVID. Um, and, Towards the end of the year last year, um, I ran a dive incident that um, seems odd, but it was a mower that was missing, uh, the person who was mowing their lawn. And 
uh, we went on scene and we we're in a retention pond and I'm searching in the retention pond. Um, visibility was garbage. You know, it's a retention pond. And, you know, but this time we have a dive team, you know, and I've had other dive calls, but this one I'm in the underwater. And so I'm a swimmer at the beginning because I, I'm not on a dive unit. Well, a dive unit got there. I was already in the water. I'm like, just give me your stuff and I'll just go back under. So I went back under and um, still thinking there's nothing, right? Who who finds a mower underwater? Like, a, you know, a big mower. So this is like a commercial company. It's it a commercial company. Yeah, yeah, that, that they were missing this individual and they were assuming that he had fallen in the water. Um, and so, you know, I'm swimming and I couldn't see anything and I run into this mower with my face mask. Well, immediately that startledness being of, uh, you know, of what just happened brought me to a flashback of my first call in 2010 and I'm sitting underwater almost like paralyzed. I was gasping for air because it startled me. I'm having this flashback. I'm now trying to find a body because now we've already known that this is a true, true rescue. Um, and I don't know how much of a rescue it is since he was missing for hours, but you know what I mean? We're still trying to get this individual out of water, but I didn't find him. I only found the mower. Um, so I mark the mower. Um, I come up, notify people that um, we 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 found something, um, and then I had to get back to work. So I go back down, and I'm running out of air because at this time we only have our little little pony bottles, little pony bottles um, as opposed to now they're switching them out to regular BCs. Um, and I I don't feel that I was giving my best because I'm still, it's just weird euphoric. Every time I went back down underwater, I'm having this flashback. Um, and so I mark, you know, I checked the whole side of the vehicle that or the mower. Um, and in our policy, you have to ascend with a certain amount of air. Um, so I come out of the water, um, say, Hey, you know, I'm at my reserve. But the way we have it set up is we have another diver ready to go in. So the next diver goes in because I marked it. Um, so now I become a swimmer at that point because I was already in the water. So I take off my dive stuff and now I'm a rescue swimmer. So I help the diver that had gone under. He pulled the individual out. He found him, pulled the individual out. I swam him to, you know, to the shore. We took him to the hospital um, and, uh, you know, he passed away. Um, but there was this level of guilt that I didn't perform my job. Remember what I said, that this level of pressure that I put on myself, that it's not my job to save everybody, but it is my job to do the best that I can to save everyone. And I didn't, I didn't feel that I did that. So there was this level of guilt and I was, shame, again. And shame mm -hmm. for myself. And, um, it was bothering me and killing me. And I remember going home the following shift and, uh, um, man, I called my crew and I was like, Hey, does anybody, you know, I'm not feeling good about this, you know, like it's really bothering me. And uh, I'm fortunate that uh, my crew is very um, perceptive of certain things. And so Randy White, ironically, is now is I work with him and he was on this call as well with me. And so uh, Randy Wyatt and uh, Blaine Handley, they were like, let's do this. Let's go out. Where do you want to go? Like, I mean, they dropped everything. It was like, all right, let's do this. Let's go. And that was the first time I was like, oh, I'm talking about an issue that I have, you know, and, and you said these were younger firefighters. Um, so Randy has been on since, you know, Randy's been on, I've been on 15. He's probably been on 13. So he's been on for a while. He was on that first incident with me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Blaine is a fairly new firefighter. Okay. He's probably been on three years. 
um, maybe four, but um, so fairly fairly new to the fire service. Okay, but a different kind of generational way of thinking. Though. Um, yeah, but he's a little bit older. Uh, he's in his thirties, so he's you know a little bit more of the millennial as opposed to a Gen Zer. Um, and um, but his but he was very receptive. Yeah, very, I mean very, that's what I mean because because some of the our older older guys, oh, absolutely, like, like yeah, John yeah. Now, we're not talking about twenty five year olds. Yeah. We're not twenty five year olds, but twenty five years of service guys who've told me, you know, hey, you pipe that down. Don't ever tell anybody again. Um, so it's more of that middle generational where they're starting to think, hey, there's something there, there's something to this. Yeah, I mean, is this a reason I point out is that that's that's great. You know, I mean, obviously there are some people that have been on twenty five thirty years that are absolutely on board with this. Sure, but to see that that was their thought process was uh, you know is a real kind of enlightening moment it shows that we're starting to see a difference in the mindset which is beautiful absolutely and i was very fortunate um because let me tell you being able to go out talk with them and i mean it was just this hanging out man it did not necessarily talk about we talked about the situation we talked about the scene but it was just hanging out and just discussing things and um it really felt good to me you know i felt good better about that situation um and, you know, I think I was trying to go through that incident, um, but I just started to. So later on, um, losing uh, Lieutenant Bonner um, really impacted me. He was my first lieutenant, you know, being um, being a probie and having your first lieutenant pass away um, in the manner in which he did. Um really impacted me. I mean, um, I always like to tell people that while I never had suicidal ideations, um, I never wanted to, right? Um, you look at all these people, Bourdain, um, Avicii, um, Robin Williams, all these guys have battled this for so long. And then there was a moment of weakness or you know, not necessarily weakness because I don't want to call them weak, but overwhelming, no hope. Yeah. So whatever especially, caused them. Especially if they if they never found the person who could find the root cause. Correct. You know what I mean? I think that's sadly what one of the, the real failures of mental health in our professions is if you're just talking about it's what you saw. Then they're never gonna find the Alex Vasquez that was abused as a child, that was, you know, beaten by his parents. If you're not addressing that and you're like, Oh, Alex, it was that dive call. Correct. You're never ever going to get there. And one day you're going to be sitting in a dark room going, well, they tried. I'm, I'm a lost cause. I might as well just end it. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the unfortunate part. And I never wanted to get there. And uh, it, it really impacted me, um, to that point. And, you know, I got to the point where, um, after that I was just lamenting on a lot of things and I was working a lot of hours because of COVID and the mandatories, um, was just weighing on me. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, 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 what are we 60, 65 hour, 56 hour employees, but I was working 150 hours in two weeks of overtime, overtime, you know, week after week after week after week. Um, and a lot of it was, um, mandatory toll or voluntold, you know what I mean? While, <laughs> while yeah. I didn't, I wasn't mandatory. I did it to prevent mandatory. Yeah. The guilt trip. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, it was a real thing. I always like knew. to say it this way. If I didn't volunteer, I would be mandatory. I don't, I don't care what anybody says. You can sit there and say, well, you volunteered for it. Listen, volunteering and not volunteering for something matters. Well, the other side of it as well is that, you know, that your friend that just had a brand new baby is going to get the hit. 
And you now with an older child who's sure. stable, sometimes you're like, well, look, I'll just take it. Sure. Because absolutely. you sh- need, you know, it shouldn't be a case because your department should be staffed where you're not forcing people to work sure. another 24 hour shift. Sure. But there was a lot of times where I think a lot of people in the fire service take it on the chin so that someone who really needs to go home can go home. Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people in the fire service, especially, you know, in Orange County who step up. And the unfortunate part is when you step up, that means you're, 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 uh, you're taking a hit pretty bad to go help someone else. Um, and, and you know, I'm not going to lie. I'd rather volunteer for engine 80 than rescue 30. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, but when you take engine 80, somebody has to take rescue 30, you know what I mean? But, um, for my mental health at that moment, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bear those extra things because I was already in a deep hole. You know, if I was sane and, you know, fine on those things, maybe I could take a rescue 30. Um, and and I, I, it's not that I'm scared. I just don't want to do it. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm not scared to do. Right. I've done it for so many years. I'm, I'm very competent in my skill set. I feel like I'm a very good paramedic, I'm not the best medic in the world, but I care for my patients. Um, but who wants to? I mean, no one should stand up and be like, yeah, bro, I'll take the 25 calls today. Yeah. Well, and I think that's just it is, that, you know. If you put it into sports terms, you know, do you want do you want to run a 5K in gym shorts or do you want to have to run a marathon with a 50-pound ruck on your back? That's, sure. That's the difference between some of these rigs. Sure, absolutely. And that's the unfortunate part about these rigs. Um, and, you know, when, when that started happening, um, all I would do is come home and I was – I would sleep. Or I would just sit there and think and lament about how much I hate my life. Um, I, you know, I'm overweight. Um, it's very difficult for me to lose weight. You can ask several guys that they like, how do you, how are you overweight when you eat like us and you work out and you do all these things? And it's just very difficult for me. Um, and, you know, I have this t- uh, birthmark on my head where it's a negative stigma for myself. My parents, when I was younger, told me that I was so bad that God had to put a marker on me to know where I was at. Where did they put their parents of the year awards? Was it above the flyer place? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was, but, but that's the thing. I have this birthmark that I would look at in the mirror on my head. It's, you know, what, eight inches long. It's five, four inches wide. And I, it's a negative to me. Um, not because people made fun of me, called me Gorbachev or anything like that. And, you know, that is what it is. Um, although I think the, uh, the most creative one that I got was from, uh, Miserable Rivera or Misrael Rivera was that, um, uh, my, uh, my birthmark looked like the map of Puerto Rico and that he was there. He was like, Oh, I was right there in Aguadilla yesterday. <laughs> He's putting pins yeah, in. Yeah. He was like marking. He was like, I was there last week on vacation. <laughs> and, uh, it, to me, that was the, the greatest one I've ever had. But, uh, you know, um, so looking in the mirror, I didn't, you know, and, um, because I look at myself and, and I've hear, heard it from people. I've been called every name under the book, right? Tubbs, Lardass, uh, Bubba Butt, uh, Fatso, Jubba the Hutt. I, I've been called it all because I'm short and, um, uh, but I, I, I like to consider myself a fathlete. You know, I'm just a chunkier athlete. Uh, uh, then I get at my height. And when I had a kid who was six one, I got the milkman jokes, the, the mailman, how tall is this person? So my, my appearance has always been made fun of. Um, and so I hated seeing myself too. You know, I had no self-worth. I had no value for myself. Um, I, I didn't look into the mirror and I didn't like to 
Um, I didn't like me. I hated me. Um, and just everything bothered me. And so I would sit and lament and these negative cognitive distortions are just running through my mind. And that's where I got to the point where I was, um, I was going, I was sinking fast. Um, I probably would say that I started drinking, um, alcohol, um, probably the last two weeks before I got help. Uh, you know, I've always, I wouldn't say I always drank alcohol. I never drank alcohol until I was like 38 years old because my father was an alcoholic and I never wanted to be like him. And so I didn't drink all those years until, um, I shot AJ Lopez's wedding in Cabo, Mexico for, and I was like, I am not turning down free alcohol for a week, you know? And, uh, AJ's a good guy. Yeah. And, uh, so that's when I started drinking again, but not, you know, socially. And then, but I noticed that I was drinking at home to ease to, man, I was like, I'm not feeling this way when I'm, when I'm not necessarily drunk, but when I'm tipsy. And so I'm starting drinking more and more. And this was like the last two weeks before I got treatment. Um, so I couldn't say that I was like addicted or I was, you know, stuck as an alcoholic, but that's where I was going. And, um, a good friend of mine, Jen, Jen Taylor in the service, um, she helped me tremendously. You know, she was always asking me, she would always stay cause we do, uh, we both, uh, do pass on. She's on a shift. I'm on B shift. And she would stay late to just talk to me because she always knew about my mental health. And she was roughly one of the only people that I could trust, um, because I knew she understood where I was coming from. And she told me one day, she's like, you know, I think you should go to the center of excellence. Um, and I didn't know what she was talking about. And I've heard the name before, but, um, cause she saw me in like this really, really dark place. Um, and she said, Hey, why don't you talk to this individual? And, uh, he had gone and just see what he had to say, you know? And, uh, so we started talking and that's where I kind of made the, the decision to, all right, maybe I should seek treatment. Um, it was, it was more pride than anything else. I think, um, it was hard to sit there and say like, I, what, what, what is people going to think about me? Right. I had this big personality in the fire service. Here's this loud, talkative person. You know, my my persona probably in the fire service is that I probably talk too much and I'm loud and kind I'm of the class happy, clown, the type class thing. clown. You yeah. know, I'm, my goal was to always make people laugh and to join in um, on conversation. So I feel like I, you know, I I could always I was this actor or I was this showman. Um, and what are what are people going to think about me? You know, was I going to get that? Oh, Alex is a piece of shit or Alex is um, uh, weak minded or, you know, the some of the terms that we would hear that aren't necessarily political, politically correct. Um, the being called a female dog or, you know, Alex is a bitch. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. the, who wants to be called that? You know, and which is so funny because if Alex needed knee surgery, people be like, oh, fucking Alex is weak knees. He's got knees like his a woman. Weak knees. No one ever says that. <laughs> no. But the moment that you need it, you yeah, need no to, one, you know, no one ever to heal. Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a counselor who once told me, he's like, Alex, you're no different than somebody who is a diabetic. And I'm like, sure. But no one treats me as a diabetic. Why is Alex altered? Oh, his sugar might be low as opposed to going, Hey, why is Alex depressed? Oh, well, he might have mental illness. You know, Let's it's an interesting, it's an interesting parallel too, because the way a lot of people's diabetes is treated is through meds instead of looking at 
nutrition and exercise sure. and getting to the root of it. So sure. it's actually a very good analogy because if we're not addressing the nucleus, the seed that you buried that's creating that ill health, and you hear this so often, especially in the in the the military space, they just get prescribed a bunch of benzos and you know all these different different cocktail of drugs, and it's not fixing the issue. You're just masking the symptoms, and diabetes is the same. And we know the, the hypertension yeah. hypertension meds. That's not making you healthier. It's just literally affecting, sure, you know, the, the vasodilator the or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever it is to manage it. You know, it, it's almost like being we paramedic everything. And what I mean by that is we're symptom treaters. We're not. Our job is not to fix patients. Our job is to manage patients until we get them to the hospital. Yeah. I it, always said that, that I was reactive when I was in the fire service, and proactive when I coached in the CrossFit gym. Yes. I want you not to ever be in the back of the rescue with me staring at you with a tube in my hand. Absolutely. You know, I, you know, sometimes we mask we mask the pain, we mask the symptoms, we mask things that we have outwardly so we don't have that outward approach to it, but we don't fix the root cause of the issue. If you put a band-aid on a hole in a pipe, it's going to leak. You're you're always going to have some leak somewhere. So if you're always mopping, but you don't fix that leak, truly fix that leak, you, you're, you're going to have it. Now, I'm not saying that meds are not um, a solution. I think meds meds with treatment. They have a place. They, they have a place. It's, a, it's almost like this coexistence. Um, you, 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 you have to have a lot of different things so that you can start weaning yourself back off of the meds and see where that growth has that has happened. Yeah. Some one of my guests said something that I thought was was perfect. And, you know, when I said earlier about the pharmaceutical industry, of course, there are meds in our box that are absolute life-saving drugs. Mm, sure. I'm talking about the chronic disease meds that so many people are on. I mean, your father-in-law went by with a, oh, yeah, a tray. bucket full oh, of a them. A tray. Um, but uh, he said, "If you, I don't mind meds as long as there's an exit strategy. Sure. And that's exactly it. If a doctor's talking about blood pressure, then it'd be like, all right, it's dangerously high. We're going to take these statins or whatever it is. But here's the plan we're going to get this much weight off you know we, we're going to see where the you know, basically we're going to wean you off these meds mm -hmm. we're going to make these meds redundant and i think that that's where it should be in mental health too if you're in kind of crisis absolutely it might be a good tool to get you down to where you can go through counseling but there has to be a point where you're like all right and then we're going to start slowly weaning you off absolutely so tell me so the 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 kind of self-talk was already very very toxic how was that compared to real world were you getting those comments from your crew or ultimately were you deluded in the way that you thought other people were thinking about about, about you going through a crisis mentally? Oh, um, no. I, you know, I've never heard anyone say that to me. Yeah. Right? So I think but, that's an important point. I think we're far more cruel to ourselves than other people are. Um, yeah. You'll hear me. <laughs> you've probably heard me say this word often or this phrase, cognitive distortion. Um, when you start studying and breaking down cognitive distortions, um, and I, you know, I, I implore people to look them up. Um, you start seeing your behaviors and, you know, we catastrophize, we maximize, we minimize. There's, um, uh, 20, you know, uh, hindsight, you know, hindsight, 2020, we say those things out loud. Um, you know, you have the, the whole treatment of the distortion that like in football, you, you know, there's a running play and it, it goes nowhere and you're watching the TV. Oh, if we would have just thrown the ball, assuming that if you were thrown the ball, it would have been a touchdown. 
completely taking away the fact that the defense would have adjusted, mm-hmm. potentially adjusted. And the running back would have had his head taken off. <laughs> Correct. You, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So we have this distortion that we tell ourselves. Um, and another one of those distortion is um, basically assuming what other people say about us. Because it's what we feel about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there was fear. Fear is the unknown. How many times do you do something you're like skydiving? Perfect example. Metaphorically and physically almost shit myself before I went. By the time I landed, I was like, sign me up. I want to do this again. again. That was the most fun. Because the mindset, you blow this picture up. I always like to tell people this. This is the reason why books are better than the movie. Your imagination is phenomenal when it comes to reading a book. But it can be detrimental when it comes to reality for you. Um, you know, self-deprecating is that's where you get self-deprecation from. Um, it's this ability to try to let other people know that you know that you have blah, blah, blah. Or myself as a, a fat individual or person who's overweight. Um, I wanted you to know that I knew that I was fat. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pick on myself because if I can pick on myself then you, I, I'm already beating you to the punch. Did you find, because I had this being painfully thin as a young young man, um, that when you were funnier than any bully could be, it disarmed them? Sure. Yeah, because I found exactly the same thing. When I could be make funnier jokes about myself than anyone else could, it actually helped. It stopped them making jokes because then they're like, oh, shit, well, this guy could make fun of me too. Correct. But it came from... A self-deprecation. Absolutely. Route. I was just. I, I used to tell people when they would try to make fun of me or something like that, and I'm like, "Do do, do you really want to get into a battle of a guy who's been sarcastic and making fun of himself his whole life? Do do you really want to go into this battle? I'm a <laughs> professional, bro. I've been doing this for thirties, blah 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 years, um, and it never ended well for them." Because I was quick-witted. I was real smart. But that was only to try to protect myself. It's a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be, you know, defensively, I was going to be the best at defending myself. And the, the unfortunate part is, um, what is the phrase about something with a thousand cuts with a thousand blades? Yeah, death or, by a thousand cuts. Death, death by a thousand cuts. It's ultimately what you were doing. You were protecting yourself from one blow by cutting yourself a thousand times. And it really equated to being more than that one blow. Yeah. And so when you don't love yourself, how can you expect anybody else to love you? How can you expect to love anybody else? Because you don't know what love is. Absolutely. And so the the distortion that we put ourselves in is just, it, it's unbelievable when you start realizing what you're doing, you know, and the, and the goal about understanding cognitive distortions and looking at the different behavioral um, principles behind those is that you you utilize your skill sets to disarm those disbeliefs. I'm starting to think this. Okay, you know what? I'm going to write this disbelief down. How can I justify this belief? And I know it sounds dumb. I know it sounds stupid, but it is you have to sometimes write these distortions or this disbeliefs down. Yep. You know, I'm never going to be loved. Never. It's, we're, we're using the word never. Mm-hmm. Right. How 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 real is that? How real is never? Yeah. I mean, if for a start, if you're a parent of any, you know, worth whatsoever, mm-hmm. then you can scratch that right off. Correct. Because when that child was born, 
Absolutely. It loves you unconditionally. Your dog probably loves you unconditionally if you don't kick it all the time. Sure. You know what I yeah. mean? So, yeah, I, mean, I, th- I love that. You write it down and you're like, all right, prove it. Pro- prove this right or prove this yeah. wrong. Yeah. And, you know, those are the, those are different behaviors like uh, DBT, dialectical um, behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, cognitive processing therapy is really good because that's what it is. You're disproving the realities of those statements. Um, but. You know, when it comes to us as people, uh, the way we operate is our body operates on a defense stage, meaning anything good that happens, our body gets rid of. Right. So it's like being in a marriage and you only think of the negative things that your husband or your partner or your spouse does. Um, It's because you don't think of the good things because once your body, once your mind is okay with something, it, it drops that from existence because there's something wrong. And so it focuses only on the wrong thing so that it can be right. Our mind wants everything to be right. Um, it's as very similar as how many times since you've been sitting here, have you cared about our ceiling not falling on you? But you didn't think about it at all because your mind has come to this um, realization that that ceiling was done right. And even if it's going to, it's out of my control anyway. So well, it, and that, but that's even being smart on yeah. it. it. It's out of your control. But if yeah. that if it cracked, you're like like a, a creak and it makes a noise. Now your mind has now took that okayness and thrown it away and said, okay, there's might be a problem with that ceiling. Yeah. We don't, we get in our car and we ride every day. We don't sit there and be like, man, is our, is my front piston firing? We don't think about those things because the front piston fires. Yeah. You know, the first piston fire, excuse me. Um, and so when it comes to yourself, all the good things about yourself, your mind gets rid of because it's already comfortable with it. So we don't think about how good or what we've done is good. We only remember the negative. If I give you a compliment or if you gave me a compliment and somebody said something negative, that negative holds 10 times more value than your compliment, right? Because this distortion that we put in our mind was, well, my mom told me or my teachers told me, if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. So if you're saying something nice to me, I'm like, oh, well, he had to say something nice, Hmm. especially when my wife gives me a compliment. She has to give me a compliment. She's my wife. So I would I would push that away. But then if somebody called me a fat lard, I'm like, this person was honest. In my mind, I'm thinking this person was honest because they broke that social stigma of if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. Not realizing that maybe that person has their own issues. Yeah. They're, they're projecting and they're projecting mm-hmm. on me. And so it, it, it's an interesting battle that our mind goes through uh, when you start understanding these. these well, and things. I think and that's a, such an important point. And I think one absolute solid through line, especially again, something I mean, I've had people on here that survived their suicide attempt, you know, which is, you know, a, a, an, a, an incredible insight. And thank God they did, you know, but the mind as we progress, as this trauma grows, as the sleep pr- deprivation compounds, and by the way, that's another reason why you struggle to lose weight. When you look at the physiological elements of that, mm-hmm. it, this, the hormonal changes, it absolutely you know, causes weight gain. So right. if you eat well and you happen to have a lower metabolism and your, your testosterone is low and all these things, so that's, you know, there's a reason for that shift work. Yeah. Um, but the, the chaos in the mind... Um, you have this point where these people, their perception of the real world is so backward that they report over and over again feeling like they're a burden. There's two two things. They're a burden 
And so this suicide isn't a selfish act, even though in reality, technically it is. In that moment, in the way their brain is miswired, they feel like, if I leave, my family will be happy. They won't have to deal with my shit anymore. They won't have to deal with my anger or the financial problems, you know, whatever it is. At that moment, that makes sense to them. And then obviously the other thing is the ending of suffering. Sure. I just can't take this anymore. But it just, it's, it's terrifying because as you're talking about that, that growth of that, you know, cognitive, um, distortion, you know, these thoughts that literally don't even make any sense anymore, that grows and grows like a cancer to the point where it now does make sense. Sure. And as I say, if you walk on a top building, you know, we say we go stand on top of the Bank of America building downtown and you're on the edge and you're healthy. There's going to be that invisible hand pushing you away from the edge. What the fuck are you doing? Right. Get back. Absolutely. That hand goes round to the back as you get to that mental ill health point. Mm-hmm. And now it's not stopping you. It's pushing you. You right. know what I mean? And that, does that make any sense? Absolutely not. But that's where these men and women get to. And it's terrifying. Yeah. You know, I think the uh, I always like to say this, that um, um, what I obviously I like to be comedic when I say certain things, but there's some level of truth to it is that. I felt that, you know, the angel and the devil on my shoulders, I felt that the devil was Sam Kennison and that the angel was mute. And, you know, I have this guy going bow, 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 on my left shoulder and my angels, you know, just doing sign language, you know, slapping his hands and trying to tell me, hey, don't do this or don't feel this way. And I I, I didn't have that. Um, I didn't have that balance um, of something good saying, hey, you know, that that's wrong or that's not true about you. Um, and, uh, that was the best description that I could give to people was, yes, I had them both there, but one was outspoken and the other one was mute and trying to allow the good side of me to have his own voice was very important. And, you know, the ability to find that voice was, was awesome. Absolutely. So, well, so tell me about your experience. So you went to the Center of Excellence, which is the IAFF's mental health center. I actually got to hear, I think she was a director of either the facility or a director of the addiction part of the facility. Um, you know, we're going to unpack the pros, the cons. Um, but tell me your personal experience of, you know, of that, you know, what, what, how you were able to go because obviously there's a price tag attached to that and then and it can lead me through those three weeks through excuse me those few weeks through your eyes you know absolutely you know um i will say one of the biggest things that when i got there um it was very adamant that they were um very concerned with not making me feel that um financial aspects was important um the you know you sit with a admin person and this is so you go in there originally you i went during during a little bit of the the covid craziness and so there was quarantine there was testings of you know i don't even know how many times i was tested before i was allowed into the populace um and um so there was an avenue of the covid situation that has totally changed how the treatment or especially going into the center um, was. And so like, I couldn't fly there. I had to drive as a, you know, um, so there was a lot, a nice 14 hour. There's guys driving from Seattle, driving from Texas and, you know, getting to Maryland is uh, um, not a quick event. So it was days for them to get there. Um, but uh, uh, fortunately for me, our union, um, the local 2057 was very, um, 
profound in getting me into the center and um, getting me up to the the center. You know, our union uh, vice president, uh, Riccardi, drove me the whole 14 hours um, to get me to the center. And they were very adamant about getting me there. And the moment I was able to reach out to them, it, there was no joking around. It was handled. I mean, within days. That's good to hear. Paul's a good guy. Yeah. Within yeah. days, I was I was in the center. I want to say I probably called him on March 1st and March 6th. I was in the center, Excellent. you know. And so um, that was uh, I, I will have to say our union did not play around. And this is before the the unfortunate situation with our firefighter who recently passed. Um, it, it was important to them. Um, and I know they had been making different, uh, waves and changes into that. So I finally get to the center, um, financial aspects. They told us not to worry about, um, the way it works is it based on your, your low, your current insurance plan. So it is a medical facility. It is still categorized as a like a mental medical facilities there are doctors there's there are psychiatrists there's there um you have therapists you have clinicians you have um so many different things um there um the, the the treatment is broken down into multiple things you're either there for uh, mental health or substance abuse which um substance abuse is either paired most of the time it's paired with mental health um so some people would go straight into a detox of some form or another um if you were that substance abuse or you would go into what is called residential um which is you have to be monitored quite a bit um and you get a higher level of uh monitoring and when i say that uh, our beds had these little dots that at night every 15 minutes somebody would walk into the room make sure you're breathing and they would have to check like punch a th- this little circle over your bed that okay bed number one in house one the the the, the patient is fine did that were you woken up when that happened? Um, you know, at first, yes. Um, when I first got there, it was because it was this weird thing that people are walking in. They were, you know, they were trying to be as quiet as possible. Um, but it is a weird aspect. But, you know, listen, you have people there that had been drug addicts. You have people there who were alcohol and detox and they didn't want anybody seizing or vomiting or throwing up and stuff like that. So the unfortunate part is when you first get there, it's, is it is this level of, uh, prying into your normal you know, trying to be relaxed and things. And so, um, so it it was at the beginning, um, when I got there, but, um, there is this whole level of trying to stabilize you at the beginning, right? Right. They don't know you. They don't know your medical history. A lot of these people are being treated medically by doctors who either really care or, or don't care. And they could be on the wrong medicine. They could be on the right medicine. So some people, once they stop doing these drugs, they're having, they have to be put on different medications to counterbalance, to wean them off. And so there is that high level and every person is different depending on were they there for mental? Because listen, just because people were there for mental didn't mean they had suicidal ideations, but then there were people with suicidal ideations who were also on substance. And so there's this level of they're trying to each individual like customize your program for each individual person um but then there's also some things where listen if i'm already in the room looking at one person i gotta look for at everybody you know what i mean and so um uh and so you go into these different plans i went into uh php and uh which was a little different i didn't have to have that high volume of 
of, of treatment or looking after, especially at nighttime, um, because I didn't come in with suicidal ideations. I wasn't addicted to any drugs or anything like that. Um, so uh, different houses get different treatments, um, level of treatments and not, not necessarily saying treatments, looking over like people watching you. Yeah. Um, and so you're you're given um, you're given these sheets um, that look like this and they just basically have all your treatments um, and how your classes are broken down. Um, so you would be um, you can look on that right there and it says um, substance use or IOP. Um, and then you would see something that would say um, uh, all or mental health. And so you were breaking, you were broken up into different groups and different classes. And, you know, some of the topics that you were, you were given, um, were just based on the day. So you, it was almost like a, a, a college kind of, or a classes where you would go through at different times. Your classes were about an hour and a half long. Um, and you were going over different types of treatments, um, and knowledge based stuff that you were going over. Um, you know, resiliency factors and asking what you want and active self-care. We would have yoga um, on Wednesdays and we would have different treatments that we would normally go through um, that were like they were trying to put you on this schedule. Right. And they, they found that having this schedule was getting you prepared to try to build this muscle memory that you can continue this outside. It's always better said than done. Or, um, and I think that's where the, the struggle is when I told you that I, when I came home. Um, but you're taught these trainings. You're taught the cognitive behavioral therapy. You're taught the dialectual behavioral therapy. You're taught the um, cognitive processing therapy. Um, and cognitive processing therapy is really more for like true trauma, traumatic events, and how the value in which they hold in your mind, in your in your heart. Um to try to battle those. And so like you, there's other different treatments like EMDR, which is like a light therapy or a, uh, like a vibration therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's where they try to almost trick the amygdala to, um, the best way it was explained to me was in men in black where they use the little phaser, the little, the pew and it would blind. Yeah. And, uh, and you would forget what just happened. You didn't see any aliens and then they would give you a new story. And they would say uh, it was it was a weather balloon that popped into blah, 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 you know, um, and ultimately that's what it's doing. Or another one that I like to say is it, it's like a, a, a film reel is rolling and you delete the audio to it. Well, no audio, no subtitles. It's just something playing in the background with no meaning. I heard I heard someone describe it as when it's trauma, when it's you know an issue, mm -hmm. it's trapped in the forebrain or, you know, the. The, almost like the short-term memory uh -huh. and by doing that you're processing and it becomes a distant memory a, a, a long-term memory and and that seemed like a good way of putting it because people can still in their mind's eye see that event but they don't have that physiological response like it had just happened that is correct and so uh, you know ha have you ever heard the term um uh play, you know playing in your mind nonstop? Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and uh it was or i'm sorry not nonstop, rent free you know, this visualization of my childhood, the sexual assault, the the dive incidents was was playing in my mind and the I was still being hurt like it just happened yesterday. And I'm 44 years old. You know, this incident happened 30 something years ago. Now, while the childhood one was a long term trauma, um, 
it was playing like it was yesterday. And so getting to the point where um, you had to battle those in this in the center um, was uh, was there was rough days, man, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, somebody always told me it's going to get worse before it gets better. And part of that reasoning was is they're digging up all this stuff. They're bringing this stuff. They're ripping that scab off mm-hmm. to try to treat it as opposed to just putting a bandaid over it. But back pain gets worse before it gets better, whether you have surgery or whether you go the PT route. I went Correct. the PT route. It was agony. Absolutely. It sucked. But now I'm stronger than I ever was. And that's the same thing with the mental health stuff. Absolutely. It's going to suck. It is. Divorce sucks. All these things suck. But when you come out and then you find a new person and now you look back and like, yeah, it sucked. But my God, was it worth it? But, you know, the interesting thing is for some strange reason, when it comes to mental health, we push it off because we don't want to deal with that pain. Yeah, because it's scary. It is. It's, it's It's the unknown. I mean, listen, when I was there the first few days, I thought life was... I didn't know what was going on. Like, I'm like, I would sit there and be like, I can't believe, I can't believe, I can't believe that I'm in mental, a mental treatment facility. Like that was just, just extraordinarily crazy for me. Which shows that there's still a stigma about the facilities too that we need to address. Sure, absolutely. Because you don't have a a realization like, I can't believe I'm in a physical therapy facility. Nobody ever says that. No, but you're just in physical therapy for your mind is all it is. Sure, sure. But nobody, you know, nobody ever addresses that that issue uh, of when you're in a physical therapy for your mind. Um, Because the, the stigma is not that. You know what I mean? I'm like, I am by definition, right? By social definition, I'm a crazy person. That's... It's mind blowing to me, you know, and I'm like, I'm, but I'm not crazy. You know, I'm just suffering from something that I, I'm hoping to get better at, um, you know, and so they they address your your medical conditions. They address your your the medications you're on and what the side effects are. Um, you go through those treatments, you go through um, depending on the level of uh, your treatment, whether you're detox or residential or um, PHP, um, they your days are different. Um, so my, my days were being a PHP patient was that I had six hours of training every day, um, Monday through Saturday, and I had Sundays off. Um, but they're like when you're residential, you're six hours a day, six days a week. And on Sunday, you have it for four hours. Um, when you're, I think it's IOP, you are three hours a day um, and you're off Saturday and Sunday. And so it's just based on your level of care. Um, and how much more level of care. So you kind of almost go through almost all of them. I did not. I only stayed in PHP. Um, so I didn't have to go through the detox or the residential or even the IRP. Um, and the, you know, the, the, you get a clinician, you get one person that is dedicated to you. Um, and then depending on what you're there for, I ended up having a trauma clinician, um, who his name was Zach. It was absolutely amazing for me because he challenged me intellectually. I am that guy that would ask why, 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 you know, and, um, he, I don't think there was a better, uh, instructor for me. So for myself, I, and I can only speak for myself in the center, um, because I think the center is just like everything else. There are people who are, it's going to work for, and there are people who it won't work for, but my mindset is it doesn't hurt to try. Um, and so, uh, my clinician, uh, April was phenomenal. I mean, her spirit and ability and what she could bring to you and make you believe in you was 
astronomical. And so, you know, just getting this level of treatment and Dr. Abby and, you know, the, the, the clinicians there. And if she can't figure it out, she is going to try. And again, she's not perfect, but at least knowing that somebody is trying for you and I don't care how much money she makes. I don't care if she's doing it for money, but the fact that she tries to make you be a better person is, uh, and she cares. She listens to you. She never rushed me out. She never, you know, did anything. She would just listen to your stories. I mean, there's up to 60 people there wanting to talk to her every day. I mean, never, doctors don't get that. Doctors don't normally do that. Yeah. You know, well, like so, you said, and they, and they don't get that. And that's another important thing with the health care that we have is that sadly, their environment is set up for failure too because they get a patient for what five minutes five minutes so what's easiest to do just prescribe drugs and send prescribe them drugs. i mean i used the doctor and i you know i won't say his name but i used to drive 40 minutes to the doctor spend five minutes in that individual's office and they would send me home and it was literally i didn't talk about anything because it was like oh okay next patient you know that kind of thing and um that's the unfortunate part about um psychiatry care um, my current psychiatrist is, is phenomenal. They, I'm like having conversations for an hour with this individual and they're listening to, they they were caring about when certain people died in our, you know, department and how is it making you feel and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's amazing to me. Like I've never had that. Um, and so in the treatment center, um, you know, the, the, I would say the biggest thing was a peer support, um, because here you are having this issue and it's amazing that, wait a minute, you're having the same problem with me. Or, you know, sometimes you would look at the situation like, Oh, that's not that bad. I'm not doing that bad. You know what I mean? Like just, you listen to some of these people's lives. I mean, I was raised horrible and somebody who was there, I was like, Oh no, they were raised worse than me. Yeah. You know and what I mean? You I'm can't s- compare trauma, but I think that's just it. You know, that, that hashtag that sadly, um, you know, got so much negativity, but me too. That's basically it. What I hear from all these groups all the time is I sat in a circle and I realized that I wasn't crazy and I wasn't alone. Absolutely. Um, I think that's the reason why I started the Zoom the Zoom meeting with a lot of the, the, the alumni from the center was because I was having these feelings about being graduated, right? I'm outside this facility and I have these feelings. I'm like, man, maybe I'm the only one. And so I started this group because I just wanted to talk to people and then listening to these people outside going, I'm feeling ironically, Alex, I'm feeling the same way. I thought I was the only person that was feeling this way. And so, you know, I created this group so that, um, uh, that people can understand that, you know? Yeah. So, um, but the treatment that's in there, um, the average person probably is there for about 36, 37 days. Um, I was there for 30. It's not a record. It's not a race. Um, it's just how long it takes you to get to the point where they think that you are not necessarily perfect, but that you can start going out and being and start learning some more techniques. And my biggest thing was self-worth, self-value. Even today, when I struggle with de- depression and things like that, something that I have that I didn't have was self-worth, self-value. I I am worthy of something. Even when I have my bad day, even when I think people call me a fatso or, you know, whatever it is, because it makes them feel better. And it's OK, whatever. That's that's who they are. Um, but the value that I know that I'm like, OK, I am overweight, but doesn't mean that I'm not worth anything. Absolutely. You know, and and uh, and it starts with that. And so, um, man, not having to worry about breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, the chef. Um, would always take care of everything when it came to your meals. Um, some days they were good. Some days they were like, all right, well, I'm just going to eat peanut butter jelly sandwich, you know? <laughs> uh, but you know, the goal is they're serving for up to 60 people and staff. And, um, 
but you didn't have to worry about that. You didn't have to worry about cleaning. The The cleaning crew there was, uh, they would literally tell you, listen, my job is to clean and I'm helping you by cleaning. Like they took worth. They knew that, oh, I'm not just a cleaning person. I'm just, I'm a cleaning person for a firefighter who yeah, saves people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, the way they looked at it, you know, as a cleaning person, um, and not, that's not a negative on the, on the, on the cleaning industry, but sometimes social stigma is you're a cleaning person. You have this level of uneducationness, you know what I mean? Yeah, like that's, that's the so, only job social you Social status. Social status. Only you could be a good person, like a politician or a lawyer. Correct. <laughs> no, I mean, which they're not, but any, anyways, but... Um, some, some. Some, sure. And I'm not putting them all in a bucket, but... Let's not but use no. the old word again. Yeah. But, you know, the the, the level of, of pride that these individuals had because they knew that there is this level of treatment in doing their job. I didn't have to worry about cleaning my laundry or my personal laundry. Yes. But like my bedding, my bathrooms, the kitchens and stuff like that. Um, so I didn't have to worry about those things. And so it was, it was very cool to have nature trails, volleyball, basketball, um, uh, not racquetball, but, uh, the The badminton. Nobody plays badminton. I used to play badminton. No. Yeah. Because you were British. No, no, um, pickleball, pickleball is what I was trying to get at. So, um, there were trails that we would be able to go down and just mindful walking and trying to do meditations and things like that. And, you know, being in Maryland was a little bit crisper air than down here in Florida where you try to go outside and meditate and you're, you're drowning in your own sweat, Mm -hmm. you know, so eaten by mosquitoes mosquitoes (laughs) and watch out. Don't be next to a a retention pond because there's a gator in it. Uh, so up there was a little bit different just because you were able to 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 peacefully meditate gym was phenomenal um they had a professional gym it looked like you were going to you know la fitness or something like that it was it, it was awesome so nursing staff is great you got your medicines at a nursing station and things like that so beautiful well i want to make sure we get one more area in before you know we kind of wrap up and i think okay. it's very important and we'll talk about the, the after and you know creating that tribe post um you know in inpatient experience um but your ocd journey your diagnosis Mm -hmm. the 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 medicine that was prescribed prior and post Mm -hmm. tell me that story and and then also the sad part of of the person who even put you on that journey so um you know i've always been this um adhd individual who uh, life was going at a fast lane in my head and um you know people i was a talkative individual and uh you know it used to annoy people um that i just couldn't focus i couldn't concentrate and i was always talking and it was just jabber 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 um and i knew that people didn't like that um and and while that was a sometimes a cognitive distortion i've seen text messages that people had posted about me or whatever um and so you know when i was at the treatment facility um i i just had a hard time concentrating i they would make a statement and i was asking why well how come we do this and some of the times they they never really went that deep with certain things and sometimes you really didn't need to be that deep in it but other times you did need to and for myself i had to um and i couldn't have anything else other than that and so I remember having a day and we were we were meditating and the first class was meditation of the day, which is odd for us. And I'm sitting in the class and uh, had an amazing instructor. She was our yoga instructor. And the goal was to um, close your eyes and count slowly. But you were walking down a set of stairs 
and she would count 10. So there were 10 steps and you would nine and you're just slowly walking down these steps. And every time I got to eight, I would tumble down these steps. I'm like, how am I tumbling down something that I'm supposed to be controlling? It's your bitch knees. It was my bad <laughs> knees. And listen, I do have, I have a torn ACL, right? You know, I mean, it's not fully torn, but, uh, um, but yeah, it's my, it's my horrible knees that I got. And so I would like, I would, in my mind, I would run back up to the top of the step and she's going back to seven and I'm, I'm like, all right, 10, nine. And, and I would, I would tumble down again. And so here I am laying on the ground. And then she's like, you know, when you're on the ground, um, your 16 year old self comes and you're talking to yourself and my 16 year old self would start kicking me while I was laying down this is my meditations right and uh my mind is always going elsewhere right so she's talking my mind's elsewhere um I always looks I always used to say that I um I I would hate to be God to hear my prayers because I would start off with good intentions but then I would be shopping in, in a mall in my head you know, God, take care of this person. And I hope that, oh, did I change out the laundry? Hmm, you know, oh, well, you know, gas is expensive, you know. And so uh, that's what my mind was was always doing. And so I remember just breaking down in the middle of the class while this meditation is going on. And um, the instructor didn't say anything. She just kept on what she was doing. But she comforted me by, you know, trying to relax me, calm my shoulders. And so that class was over. And, you know, I'm still distraught. I'm still crying and go to the next class. And, um uh, this individual is next to me and we're talking and very quiet, peaceful, peaceful guy, um, Sam. And he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, man, I'm just, I can't, I, I'm just having to struggle. I couldn't even meditate, you know? And, you know, he started, to, we're just talking about what happened. I was like, every single time I, I try to go down these stairs, I would, um, I would fall. And, um, after, you know, getting in depth of what happened through a conversation, he's like, well, well, it's because you're OCD. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm OCD? And he's like, well, people who have OCD that are, that are untreated can never go down the stairs. They fall. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, I've been here for a while and this is my second time being here. And, um, what I've heard and what I've learned being here is that people with OCD can't focus on that because their mind is racing. And, uh, I'm like, okay, well that's, nobody's ever told me that, you know, I've, I've been here 10 days. And so went through the class the the instructor for that class, um, her name is Tawaka. Um, and you remember names like that because it's unusual, but it she was Tawaka awesome. Um, and she is that person that, uh, she'll, she put you in your place and let you know your value. And for the first time I left that class because of her, cause we were had, a, we had a class, but she saw the way I was and that class was me and she never moved away from, okay, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to talk about you before we talk about class. And um, that's how personal she took it. And so, um, as like, we like to say, I was to walkified. Um, and so we moved, uh, I was able to move forward and go. And so I, I sought treatment from Dr. Abby. Um, I went to her and I said, um, you know, this is what this individual said to me and I'm having, and you know, she could see that I'm still having this breakdown of, I, I'm not getting anything out of the classes. So she, uh, pulls up a report, asks me some questions. And, um, I think it was like a Yale Brown university study or whatever it was. And so she starts asking me some questions from, it, and she's like, Hey, has, uh, 
well, has anybody ever told you other than what here that you have OCD? And I'm like, yeah, well, not really. But the, you know, the assholes at the station, they say I have OCD. <laughs> And, uh, but you know, obviously, firehouse medics. yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> obviously they're just being assholes and, uh, she's like, oh, well that's cool. Um, well you have OCD and, uh, she goes, I think that you have ADHD from OCD that when things aren't in order, you are attention deficit. Like if a trainer or if a teacher comes in and they're not organized, you're not either. Yeah. And so. Well, <clears throat> I'd have been tre- I had been being treated for ADHD, but I was being treated with Wellbutrin um, for that. And, uh, I, you know, I was on Adderall. And the unfortunate part is once you go on one medicine, you they put you on Adderall was dropping me low to a depression. So they put me on Zoloft and then I was having some anxiety from it. So they put me on an anxiety med. And um, so here I am on this street on this drug for several years. And she's like, well unfortunately you're on the wrong medicine and she's like well there are medicines that don't work we put people on and they just don't work she goes you're on a medicine that is actually doing the reverse for what you need and i'm like what do you mean she's like it's making your condition worse (laughs) and i'm like are you kidding me because i've been on this medicine for years and uh so she changed it she took me off of wellbutrin and put me on anaphronil um a low dose the beginning dosage um and it's for ocd um illnesses or issues um and it's supposed to help you focus concentrate and things like that well that was on march 14th or excuse me 15th and on march 16th march 17th my life changed i was like able to focus i was able to listen in class i didn't have racing thoughts anymore and i'm like this is weird you know and so i started understanding things and uh my life changed that day and I'm a different person today. You know, I like to say that it's my rebirth, right? Um, I don't say that I was born again because I am a born again Christian, but I, it was my rebirth of who I needed to be. Um, and I have everything to thank for Sam who, um, gave me the, the something that nobody else did. He'd listened to me. He, and as a non-doctor, as a non-clinician, but somebody who had been dealing with it for years in his life and just listening and sharing. And that's why I'm big on sharing. Um, he shared what he thought and, you know, not that he was diagnosing me, but um, he helped me seek treatment or seek the proper treatment. And um, so he was very special to me. Um, Sam had his own um, his own demons that he was battling. And, um, Sam was doing treatments that I had already, you know, I had done and it, they weren't working for him. He did EMDR. He did, um, all the CBT, CBT, DBT therapies. He was doing, um, some, uh, like a brain treatment where it was like a, like they would zap you. I don't know exactly the treatment that he was doing, but he was going off campus for it and stuff. But, and, um, unfortunately, um, after I left, um, since he had been there for so long, um, he couldn't bring himself to being at graduations and things like that because he couldn't he couldn't bear the law leaving of people that he became friends with. He'd make a tribe and then he had to leave that tribe again. Correct. And that he's the only one staying. Like, why isn't he getting better? Um, but unfortunately, he um, I guess he got to his max. He got to his point where he couldn't bear anything else. And he I can only assume that he lost hope in in, in ever getting cured. Um, and he checked out and unfortunately, uh, a few days later, um, took his life and, um, uh, it was very, 
um, impactful and very um, hurtful for me. Um, um, not necessarily because I think he did something wrong, um, but I couldn't give back what he gave to me. Um, but with the with the th- with the therapies and the training, I know that it wasn't my fault, and I don't ever blame him either. He tried. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about months he put in. Uh, months and months and months he put in for his treatment and uh i do have a piece to know that he's no longer suffering um and and it takes a very special place to be in where you can look at somebody who did commit suicide um that they're in a better place um because of what happened right um i don't care what religion you are i don't care what it is and what the bible says um we don't know the battles that people are going through that cause them to be in the situation that they feel that they need to take their life. Um, I, I always revert back to a movie. I think it was in Time Cop, a very old, horrible movie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was a part where somebody um, got thrown out of a window. And uh, a bellman from a hotel was at the bottom when the person's landed, thinking that the individual committed suicide. Right. He didn't know what happened above. Um, but the whole premise was that this individual committed suicide. Um, and I remember him saying, uh, if I'm quoting the movie right, poor bastard, he didn't know that tomorrow would bring him a better day. Um, and that has always stuck with me um, because we don't know. March 14th. I didn't know that March 15th would be a better day. And. While I'm not perfect, while I do still struggle, I am not the man who went in on March 6th. And without people who helped me get there, Jen Taylor, um, some other people I, I, you know, I don't want to name, um, and the union pushing and picking up the tab of my uh, expenses getting there and coming home, that... I don't know if it would have been that easy for me to do it. Um, I know that it's a good thing that the IFF is doing something great. I don't know the policy if you're not part of the union. Um, but I am a, I'm here today because of the treatment. Um, I know I would have been in the possibility of suicidal ideation and possibly taking my life. Um, and that's a hard thing to, to say. Um, but I am thankful is, is the center of excellence, a perfect place? Absolutely not. Um, they, they're learning every day. We do surveys. I have to do another survey that I was went 30 days out and I will start talking and calling them and listen, this is what I think we need to start doing for people who are outside the treatment. But everything that I know that we've ever had an issue with, they've tried to mitigate and to fix and change and make different changes. Um, I don't think that they can pick and fix everything, right? Because they're not, um, they're there to try to hit some points. But I do know that a lot of firefighters have gone in there for PTSD from on the work and have come out. And I remember one guy telling me and he was in three weeks and he's like, huh, do you know, I have a problem with my dad. He was three weeks in, mm-hmm. never knew that he had a problem with his dad. He just went there for um, substance abuse and which is a mental health, problem. which is and they started I mean? working on his mental health. They start going back and he they started finding things that we found in our in our childhood. Um doesn't mean that we can't do our job just because we had a, a horrible 
uh, childhood just means that we need to address those issues um, when they come up. I think that once you start hitting each individual event that when they happen, um, I think the money has to be there. there. There, there is no excuse that there is no money that, that cannot be an excuse for mental health. I don't care if, I don't care if mental health becomes the number one expense or cost in the fire service. It cannot be an excuse. We just don't have the budget. I don't care. We raise the taxes. I don't, I don't care. Well, again, it's proactive versus reactive. Absolutely. We, we have the money, but we need to have the mindset of we're doing this for the generation 10 years from now sure instead of i'm gonna make myself look good this budget year so i can get my christmas bonus or my chief of the year award or whatever it is or administrator of the year and that's i mean i'm being sarcastic but it's absolutely bloody true sure is if we're gonna fix the fire service we need to fix the work week we need to put you know fitness standards back in so that we keep our men and women healthy you know we need to have i think we should have counseling at the orientation of a department take that budget you waste on polygraphs and psych tests and instead put three four five level you know sessions of counseling whilst you go through your pt or fire skills so that by the time you come out you have a go-to person and you've had the off the ability to offload some of the trauma that you're bringing into the profession now you turn trauma into resilience yep you know but we don't think of that we're we're reactive and with i don't post how sad you are about losing so-and-so for cancer or so-and-so yeah. from from suicide mm-hmm. if you're not willing to step up and demand that we change things because yeah. right now we're just going to keep burying men and women and you and i both know that because we've been to so many funerals the you know for me i think there is should be a department i mean we have logistics we have you know operations we have uh safety and wellness and i know that wellness is starting to do things especially in orange county um with some of the things that um, have occurred in Orange County that they're starting to put some issues or not issues, but they're starting to put some, um, some, some effort, some energy into, but I, I honestly believe that well, safety and wellness should be safety. And then there's wellness and wellness is its own, um, its own entity with the people. I don't care how many people you need to get into that division or that department, whether it be how many chiefs or a lieutenant or whatever it is, but people who are going to extended treatments, um, or, or educational things where they become licensed you know they have their masters in psychology or you know psychiatric care or clinical status and things like that so that they can help internalize or internally hey let's take this individual off shift and let's work on this or hey even off off duty hey come in to your you have a county you can go to a therapist on the county's you know uh county's dollar that knows where you've been knows where you've gone knows how it is to, to be sleepless knows how it is to work in a department where there's always everybody always has an issue with admin right that's just life. We don't agree with the people at, at headquarters because they have an agenda. They have a job. And sometimes we don't see it like them and they don't see it like us. But everybody has to, co- you know, co- cooperate together to be able to achieve something. And so that's what I think that um, uh, and I'm hoping that they're going to move towards that because I'm going to push for that. Um, I am definitely an advocate for mental awareness. Um, I'm not broken. I'm not. I just... I'm just going through something and uh, hopefully with with uh, medication, hopefully with education, support and all the aspects of it, being able to, you know, and I thank you for allowing me to be on your show um, to to speak to people from a reality of. I am a person who is suffering from mental illness 
and I'm I'm proud to say it. Um, I'm not proud to say it. I'm proud to proclaim it, right? Because that means that I'm taking steps to beat it. You know, I never understood why, you know, alcoholics would always go to AA meetings and go, hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. And I'm an alcoholic, even though that person haven't had an alcoholic drop for a year. But it's because it's a daily battle. It's a daily struggle. It's something even when you're in a good state, you have to work on your body like you as a person who works out often. For me, who's somebody who wants to lose weight, it has to be a life change. It has to. And I'm still working on that, those life changes. And again, you you know, you, the sleep deprivation, the I had, you know, just got tested for low testosterone or testosterone and I'm extremely low. I'm below what they say is low. And I think what they say is low is low. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're and right I'm, on both. And, 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 and that's an industry norm. That's what's so horrendous. No, it's, it's just such a weird nobody. It's like a ta- another taboo topic is male testosterone, you know, it's the only the only scale that I know that is a thousand to fifteen hundred points difference in high and low, you know, and uh, as long as you're somewhere in between there, it's OK, even though it's like, oh, no, that's not necessarily right. You know, no, no that 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 lower scale is the when they did the study to make that scale was like the 80 year old in that town that they studied. So as a 30 year old alpha male. Right. In a in a responder profession. Correct. Absolutely, you should not be in the two, three hundred range. Sure, it's like BMI, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I get on a scale, and my scale says, "Alex, uh, you shouldn't be alive right now." But I can see my toes, yeah. right? I'm in in the county's mindset is, I'm going to tell you, this is another thing that doesn't help. To being called morbidly obese is not uh, mentally helpful <laughs> when you're like, "Dog, I can do, I can do a squat, I can do, you know, I can touch my toes, I can see my toes, I can see, you know, yes, I am overweight, and I'm working on that." But to be called to sit there be like, "You're morbid." Leo yeah. beast and you're not because i'm looking at you right now you're just carrying a little extra weight sure i you know, you know but I, you're overweight doc i'm okay with that you yep, know what i mean but exactly. uh obviously bmi we know is not necessarily because i've seen people who are fit oh yeah body bodybuilders come up as morbidly obese right because it's know? just weight versus their mass and so the height yeah yeah and their height too um so um just trying to change stigma trying to be out there and the, the different departments and you know i'm hoping to go back to school um to uh, and to get a psychology major, um, just cause I want to help. I want to be a clinician. I want to be able to help people in the same situation that I am just me being a helpful person, trying to take what I'm actually truly battling as opposed to the things that I did in the past was helping other people that I never had an association with, but I still felt that they needed to help. I'm now taking something that I know that I'm dealing with and wanting to help people while helping myself beautiful well for people listening um as we wrap this up if they want to reach out to you where are the best places online um man i'm on facebook i'm on instagram um facebook is you know alexander vasquez um instagram i'm i think i'm alexander the grape um i'm on uh twitter alexander the grape um i'm on tiktok alexander the grape underscore um I'm pretty easy to recognize. I'm Hispanic, little chunky athlete uh, with <laughs> with a, a with a red birthmark on my head. Um, but uh, yeah, they can always you know reach out to message me or you know I work for Orange County Fire. Um, so if you trying to figure out which Alexander Vasquez it is, is that and I'm with two Z's. Not there's no S's in my name. So um, yeah, they can you know reach out. I'd love to talk to people. I'd love to share my story and um, hopefully put them in in a right direction where they need to go. Um, Cause I do know 
uh, counselors. I do know therapists. I do know things that um, some people just don't know what's uh, and I can get them and guide them through the the scary parts of going to treatment and like the uh, center, um, the IAFF Center of Excellence in Maryland um, and what to expect if you want to go there for your family and things like that. Fantastic. Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean, we had a, a call a while ago and, you know, I see, you know, so many, so many people as I've progressed through my career, you know, whether it's people that taught me as a rookie in my very first apartment through to, you know, the most recent one. But this is all of us and we all, it impacts us in different ways depending on the foundation of the years prior, you know. Sure. So to come on here and tell your story and be another courageous voice is imperative. I mean, it will save lives and it will add to that critical mass that gets this topic normalized, you know. So I just want to say thank you so much for for telling your story today. Well, no, thank you for having me. Um, I, I'm glad that I have gotten to a point where I'm not embarrassed to um, tell people that I, I needed help um, and that there were people there who were willing to help me. That I think is the biggest, the biggest thing. And, you know, knowing how to reach out to somebody, because sometimes just a, just a phone call, if you think somebody's going through some, uh, something, you don't, you don't need to ask them many questions. All you need is, Hey man, you want to talk? Let's go out to lunch or something. Um, but keeping that constant reminder to them that, Hey, Hey man, how are you doing this week? You're not being judgmental. You're just being there for that individual. Um, so um, but hopefully by being able to speak to people, uh, people on the opposite side, people who feel like they're okay, um, but wanting to help somebody to give them the ammo or the the confidence to be able to help somebody. Cause I know I hear a lot of things. I just don't know what to do. And sometimes, man, all you got to do is, Hey man, how are you doing? Hey girl, do you need anything? Let, let's talk. Let, let's go out to eat and just chat, just chat, man. Just talking, just talking about this to me is, is liberating of anything that I had going into my head today. And it's a daily thing, talking about it, getting it out there. So I appreciate it.